are back with the book club, the Talonjin Book Club, and here we're working hard to bring forth some of the most controversial and suppressed history, some of the information that's the most difficult to dig out, and we're here providing it here for you, so please join the Talonjin Book Club. No, I was just going to talk about uh, and that whole series of total onslaught. Is that the one? Yeah, he, he does different ones. But but that that one really got me hooked into the uh, into going back to God that <laughs> whole series. I watched the whole the whole thing. I was so on fire after watching it. But the the one that I'm talking about is the UN and the New Age agenda. Yeah, that's that's the one we're going through. I mean, I'm trying to. I'm, I, I never really was motivated to become. A seventh day Adventist, which I mean, I, I I'm with adventing on the seventh day. I'm, I'm with it, but I just not like. I'm not really good at like getting into like a group situation. And, like, yeah, I don't think I think now the time we're supposed to come out of the world. I think I think we're supposed to come out of supposed to come out of Babylon, and supposedly the church is Babylon or this papal system. Right. I've done my church and I'm good. Yeah, I mean, if you if you I found a good church, go if you found a good church and you don't, and the teacher's good, then you're good. I mean, but a lot of these churches, they're teaching a, a form of churchianity, which is really Roman Romanized because they they have all Here's the formation, right? And all that they have all the accoutrements of Rome. So they have the even the way they're positioning, and they, they even start to break out the little cups of of wine and the little pieces of bread. So they're starting to do kind of like a rudimentary form of communion, you know, which the Baptists and the the Presbyterians, all they, they really don't have any idea. They just kind of go, they go in, they sit down, they go along with whatever you, you give them. So they really don't know. But if there are a few good churches that are that are keeping things together, that are at least remembering the old uh, the old truth there. You know, yeah, we call it the old the old Christians of the way. You know, the the ones who remember the original persecutions and the old history there. A lot of these new Christians, they they paint Easter eggs and they have. Christmas decorations, and then that's it. They don't, beyond that, they're just totally blank. Which is really what the point of this whole thing is. Like, we're, I mean, we're trying to introduce these kind of complicated ideas because the people in the church pews don't really know anything about the occult because that's what it is. It's occult. It's it's darkness. It's um, it's invisible. I, it's you know? evil. It's dark. It's right. successful. It, it really is. And they don't really have any kind of clue about it, so we they, they need information. I mean, we need information to proliferate. But as far as the real society and the Thole society and and just kind of like bringing that stuff into, which is completely obscure, and bringing it into kind of like a way to, for people to, to manage the information and understand what's happened there. But I think it's fascinating because in ancient German secret societies, even before the time of Hitler, they had these beliefs in higher uh, higher beings and higher racial, which is really the key thing, is they believed in a higher racial structure, so they believed they were, they were racially yeah. superior. So, you know, that doesn't that isn't particularly interesting, other than the fact that it's, um, it's at the heart of the globalist elite today. You know, they haven't really changed their stripes. I'm thinking the, the Hindu caste system, that, that almost applies there. That's that's weird because I mean, from it's a form of racism, I right. guess you could say. Right. Yeah, you're born in this caste, and even though all the castes are needed, uh, there's 
there's some untouchables on there. Right. That's fascinating because Blavatsky is going back to the ancient Aryan Hindus and saying that they have these weird racial theories, you know? And that's how we get into this this kind of weird quasi-racialist state because really, if people have um, a complexion, they have melanin in their skin, and they're let's say they have less melanin, and they're 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 pale, they're white-skinned people. It doesn't mean they're all in the same race, right? So yeah, it really doesn't. You have all these different kinds of people throughout the world speaking different languages, different cultures. I mean, you have the bat like look at the bath culture, bath. They are a very unique white culture. You know, they have the green eyes, dark hair, light skin. That's so strange. Hair. They're, they're their own, like, racial, cultural, ethnic, monolithic thing, but they don't fit into this weird black and white racial paradigm. They, they you have to, it has to be more, it's more nuanced than that. There has to be more complexity in our way, the way that we understand different people and different cultures and different, you know, racial groups, you know, so there's a lot of people who have dark skin in South America, uh, uh, pygmy tribes, like people who live way down in South America, but they're not African. South Pacific. Yeah, they're not African people. They're just people who, whose ancestors were like lived close to the equator, and so they developed a high amount of melanin in their skin over time. So I think that we're really deranged over race as a, as a global mass consciousness and as a global culture. Natural selection. Yeah, with like Darwin really what pushed that to the forefront too. Uh, Hitler seized on Darwin's theories to say that some races were more evolved and were high, more highly spiritually attuned. And so, yeah, that's, that's the kind of like milieu that we find Blavatsky in. And as we look at these documents that I want to read in to the show, we have like some of the articles I sent over. I'll add them in the show notes. But it goes into this, this deep discussion about individuals who got these letters from the Ascended Masters and who explained the origins of the seven root races and how there were these, these massive racial wars that wiped out all of the different races and only a few survived. And it reminds me of Mormonism. Mormonism has the same weird thing about the American Indians, you know? They have this weird, yeah. weird way of playing playing out this, this spiritual they, war. They, they're the missing tribe of Israel? or Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they have the. There's all these um, temples built all over the country that just haven't been discovered yet. Yeah, they're, they're supposedly the lost tribe of Israel, and they, they made God angry, so their skin got darker. And those who were blessed and found, who had a goodly nature to God, their skin became fairer. I mean, it's in the Book of Mormon. So we've, we've done episodes on it. You really can't get around it. It's part of their like immutable doctrine that people who have dark skin are cursed by God. It's, it, that's, that's the Mormon faith. You know? So that, that's why all these different occult societies have this strange kind of like Anglophile, like white superiority thing going on there. And I think that uh, Hitler seized upon it and he definitely was an acolyte, a, a theosophist, if you want. So we'll show all that information in the show notes there. I think Edward bulwer Lighton, he was the guy who wrote Vril and the, the Power of the Coming Race. That was, that was a Vril the book. He was the one who wrote the novel. And of course, he's a, when I look at his family, he was um, a, an English lord. He was a lord, Bulwer Lighton. And you can see if you look at his background. But isn't it, isn't it so obvious, though, that all of these, this certain genre or religion, they, they all come from a, a secret 
the secret doctrine, the Book of Mormon, the the place and the seer stones and the the and the beginning of it, the, all the testimonials. We saw stones and the seer stones, and we read the golden plate. And all, right. that, you know, it's all a secret, right. and it's and it's like you know, I I just thought of this, but it's like uh, Jesus says. He says. In, uh, when, when they talk about the coming of the Son of Man, that is he going to be in the upper rooms? People will say he's in the upper rooms. Don't believe them. People will say he's out in the desert. Don't believe them. Because when he comes, it's, Everyone's it's see it. overwhelming. Everyone will know. It's not some secret form or, or ceremony that you have to have to, to uh, participate in. It's it's known. It's there for for everyone. Right. No, you're totally right. It, it'll be. It, it won't be a secret inner chamber. That you know. That's that's how they operate. They operate with these. It's always Gnosticism. It's always the secret knowledge that no one else has that you have to be revealed. To, you know, has to. You have to be initiated into it. And then, you know, so obviously the, the the gospel of Jesus Christ is everyone in the whole world knows it. You know, every everyone is totally aware of the great. Right. Thing. So 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 that means that the. The leader of the Gnostic Church can select who, because apparently you have, when you die, one of their beliefs, uh, forms of their religion says that you encounter all these beasts and different things that are going to try to trick you in the afterworld and suck you down into, you know, Hades, and you have to know how to navigate your way through it. And, you know, what what kind of God do you, do you really want to go to that heaven? Right. God makes you do all of that crap. Well, I think that for many people, the idea that they have to engage in some kind of religious work is just like fundamental to their existence. I mean, think about people like in Islam; they're 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 ingrained from childhood, and they're you know it's like life or death. Like if you if you fall away from it, they'll chop your head off. You know, so it becomes. It reminds me of all the systems of cult ideology in the past. Like we're talking about the Hashishans. And the um, you know the old man the man how they had perfected a system of assassins that was so perfect the assassins yeah the yeah the secret the secret order of assassins the Hashishans and how they were so brainwashed that they would just kill themselves on order you know like there's a certain level of of occult power that's that's um, they, they create multiplying systems and multiplying agents and yeah when when they when they um, when they get ready to go on their mission. They have, there are some of them, maybe this is the elite ones, they, they take them to a garden and a, and a, and a castle somewhere. And there's all kinds of fruits in the garden and beautiful women and totally indulge their, their senses for like two weeks. And then they go on their suicide mission. Yeah, that so sounds that's, familiar. And I think these are the kind of programs over time that have been successful, have been operational throughout you know, throughout time and you can see that they're trying to build up these elite agencies and you can see over time that uh, that's exactly what they've done and we're, we're dedicated on this program of kind of exposing and bringing to light some of this backstory and some of the hidden forbidden knowledge you know it's it's verboten we're not allowed to discuss we're not allowed to, to bring it out and that's exactly what we're doing on the show and I think it's I think it's fascinating that no matter what I do, I always keep returning to these these high like royals, these high nobility in in, in England. You know, there you have Arthur Balfour, and now you have this individual who was a politician 
ultimately to Edward Bulger Lighton, and he's writing this book, The Vril, and how it, it really like it, it enchants and it mystifies an entire generation of the elite, so that they 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 actually form this Vril society, and they just it, they, it actually empowers through occult societies and through secret uh, mystery societies to actually help Hitler get into power. And so we have to kind of like explore that whole backstory there and this connection between theosophy, between... Has that like story a, been exposed? I don't think if the real story has been exposed about Hitler and, and his rise to power and all. They whitewash it. Well, it's, you know, it's, even it's though really, they yeah. show all the horrible things he did, he was really dark. He, they, he was deep into that. And they were doing... Um, they were constantly on amphetamines with, you know could cause psychosis and hallucinations, probably the bad kind. And I was thinking and, about uh, that. He was terribly dark. I mean, in, in his whole group, how, can they, how does a group of dark individuals come together like they did in, in the Nazi party? I mean, just, you know what I'm saying? So so cruel and inhuman. Because they think they're, they're, they, they are inhuman. They're the superhuman. Right. I think they, they, it was a will to power. I think it was, I mean, if you look at, at Hitler himself, he was an Austrian. So he's from Vienna. And he has Franz von Papen help him get become the chancellor. And he, he spends like nine years looking kind of normal. And then everything just completely goes crazy. So I think during that time, they, they must have built that infrastructure of power, you know, that power base there. And they had all these strange Germanic cult background, the, the pagan cults of the Germanic Teutonic. people. Yeah, the Teutonic Heights, yeah. all, all these kind of strange uh, Germanic pride, which is really what it was, because you got to remember, World War One, Germany got, got really hammered, and then there was the Versailles Treaty, or whatever treaty it was, that basically, like, that, you know, put them in the position where they weren't allowed to really have an army, they weren't really allowed to have an economy, they were just this kind of, like, slave state, and so I think Hitler addressed the grievances of the people and their pride and brought all that kind of back, you know, all this Germanic history and Germanic proud, you know, make Germany great again kind of thinking, he brought it back into, into style. So, but ultimately, like I said, it looks to me like it was the counter-reformation and like ultimately the plan was to not, not to make Germany great again, but to lead Germany over the cliff. So that's why it's kind of strange when, um, when they say he was a nationalist because he didn't do anything to help Germany as a nation. He just left it in ruins. Which seems to be the ultimate plan, you know, um, behind what their whole apparatus. And I guess they wanted to destroy, like we said, a lot of these occult, this occult ritualism and occult magic, it always has this anti-Semitic bent. And they're always trying to, um, it goes back to the Inquisition, too. The Inquisition was always trying to um, find the Christ killers and, 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 you know, the heretics and, and root them out, you know. And, yeah, it's always involved children. It always involves children and abuse of children. They suck their energy out somehow. There's, there's adrenochrome. There's, I mean, there's, there's got to be some truth to, to some of that. Well, if you look, I mean, even if you go into South America, the the, the, uh, the mummies are there where they they used to like to go up on the, the high on these peaks, and during the first light of these the, the summer solstice, the Aztecs or whoever. I don't, my, my history's not perfect on it, but they used to like sacrifice children up there. And I don't know what the obsession is with that. You know, why it is the children need to be carted up the mountain and then mur you're murdered on the first light on the, on the tips of the mountain. You know, they would show up. Yeah. It, so, you know, 
that that's really what we have to kind of root out over time is that there is this kind of there is a great controversy and there is an adversary that's um, that attempts to destroy humanity, and uh, I think that's what we have to fight against. So thank you for listening here. We have to take a moment to do a message from our sponsor. We have a wonderful sponsor. We have Wendy's Boutique Limited. So Wendy's Boutique Limited is the wonderful sponsor. And um, so Wendy, Wendy's Boutique was ha- happy to sponsor our episode. So you have to go and you can find most wonderful find gold and silver jewelry there. You can find hottest trends and styles, women's apparel, fashion, brand name labels at wendyslimited.com wendyslimited.com and so this is one of the hottest new boutiques out there. You have to just go in there and just support us, support our cause, support our sponsor and make sure that you um, find some really beautiful item, maybe some wonderful perfume for your loved one, for your wife or girlfriend. Get some attention. Wendy'sLimited.com. Wendy'sLimited.com, guys. So as we're moving forward through the material, we're just trying to keep up with all the the different information. We have to kind of split hairs and make sure that we, you know, take a a good look at all the different information that, you know, that we're presenting here. So ultimately, the Vril Society was going to come into being for being named the word Vril coming from a novel that was written in 1871 by Edward bulwer Lytton. And Edward Bulwer-Lytton is, uh, is someone that has a relatively famous name in literature circles. So as we're going forward, we have to recognize that uh, a lot of the facts surrounding this, the occult nature of this kind of idea of a transcendent super race is coming out of the age, this age of Darwinian theory and the idea of, of this process of being of slowly coming out of the sludge and and starting out as worms and climbing through evolution to become men, you know, from monkeys to men. So this kind of idea is taking hold. And you can see that this idea of a superior race or the white race being dominant over other lower species of men, this whole kind of concept in the 1850s and 1860s and in the 1870s. So 1871 is when uh, Edward bulwer Lytton uh, is going to publish this novel called Vril, the power of the coming race, right? So it kind of like taxes into, like Mormonism, it taxes into this this era of, of certain racial theories and certain racial supremacy, idealism, and ideology that's working its way through the, uh, the human cultural event. So in, in as much as this is the period of, of the Civil War, and so the idea of uh, men who have melanin in their skin, who have dark color, um, the idea that they should be enslaved as as a classification for their their racial heritage, you know, as far as you know, the idea that white men are, are free men and black men are or other races and other cultures are ultimately inferior and should be subordinated 
these are all the kind of ideas of conquest that have been coming through the 18th and 19th century. So the, the British Empire is ultimately the one with the Portuguese and the Spanish and others are the ones who are running this slave empire on the world. They're, one, they're the ones who are trafficking in slaves, who are, are uh, collecting them, pressing people into slavery in, in sub-Saharan Africa and other places in the world, in India, or, you know, people are in slave conditions. So this idea of uh, there being a super race is something that's deeply embedded in the European occult ideology. So that's why we point out that the Ku Klux Klan and the, the Mormons and, and others, and even ultimately what the point that we're getting to here is that theosophy and the teachings of Lucis Trust and Helena Blavatsky have this same tenor of racial superiority. So in order to kind of break down this whole discussion, we're going to introduce this New York article. It's called, it's kind of like a joking satire title here that says that the Nazis came from Middle Earth and possibly still live there. It's kind of a joke, and it really talks about this idea of the real society being deeply embedded in the culture of conspiracy theories, but we need to really break it down and find out where it came from in the original source of the information rather than just kind of going off with the UFO, flat earth people, and just, you know, feeding into the, the absurd echo chamber of nonsense, we have to kind of find out where these terms come from. So in this article, we're just going to read it real quick and break it down. This article was coming in 2013. In 1871, under an anonymous cover, the writer-politician Edward bulwer Lytton published the novella Vril, The Power of the Cunning Race. Bulwer Lytton is now most famous for coining the phrase, the pen is mightier than the sword, and the opening line, it was a dark and stormy night. So those are some of the things he's famous for. So back to the article here. But Vril, too, has had a long afterlife. A conflation of Vernesque, hollow earth sci-fi, proto-occult theories, and Darwinism. It's narrated by an American who stumbles on an underground, this is the book, this is the whole Vril novel, an underground race descended from ancient Aryans that harnessed a source of infinite power called Vril. Its processors, the Vrilia, had transcended war and envy and even democracy to establish a classless utopia. So it goes on to say, the myth of the Vril was quickly co-opted by the same Victorian mystics who inspired it then passed down into the hands of nativist German cults. One of those cults, the Thule Society, backed Hitler and the Nazis, which is a true fact. After the war, writers both pro- and anti-Hitler theorized that the Fuhrer's impatient with occultists notwithstanding, something called the Vril Society had actually engineered his rise. So you know, we're getting into the kind of speculation about this Vril Society and, and what it could have been to Adolf Hitler. So it goes on to say that there were two French authors who asserted that the Nazis had sought to build UFOs, etc., etc. And it goes on to kind of talk about some of the conjecture about Hitler fleeing to Antarctica. We might make a note here. It's kind of ridiculous because our thesis is that Hitler survived and he made his way to Argentina, which is a long way off from Antarctica, right? So not to say that the Nazis didn't try to have a submarine base in Antarctica or whatever, but... The truth is, is that it, it, the most likely outcome is that he made his way out of there and he survived for a long time in Argentina. Um, so let's go back to the article. 
goes on to make the accusation that the Zabril Society is incorporated into right-wing New World Order conspiracy theories. Okay, so we'll just dispense with that because our objective here is only to get down to the the mainline course of the facts here and to just dispense with all this the Church of Virology and all this kind of nonsense, but to point out that there was an occult basis for Hitler to have these theories that had to do with, it substantiated the Darwinistic thought that there was a superior race. So that's kind of really what we're trying to isolate here out of this information. And then it, it, it sums up in the article more useful, there's other information that's useful here. And it goes on to say that there's no denying that the, that IBM and Volkswagen had ties to the Third Reich, or that German spies were absorbed into the Western intelligence agencies. So, that, you know, as far as we're concerned, that's enough information for us. All the other exaggeration and, and the deep reading into and speculation into Hitler's belief system uh, nowadays is really not our, is really not that interesting for us. But what we're trying to really ground into into our thesis here is the, the active support of this full society, which backed Hitler and the Nazis, and this idea of nativist German cults who were who were being inspired with this idea of the real racial theory or this idea that there was a transcended spiritual nature to the German people. And in this way, when you realize ultimately that Theosophy and Helena Blavatsky are in the background of this atmosphere that's generating so much occult thought, and that ultimately that the interference with Western intelligence agencies and the fact that Wall Street with IBM and other large corporations were assisting the Nazis are things that don't seem to be that profound in this article, since they have to try to poke fun at this idea of the Vril. I think ultimately the context of the Vril became a symbolic piece of fiction, just how we look at today at 1984 and other books that are trying to describe a, a future, a postmodern future, and trying to paint a, a dystopian technotronic tyranny in the idea of fiction. And so in the same sense here, Edward Bolwer Lighten is seizing upon the crystallizing belief system that the British aristocracy and the nobility and the princely ruling class of royalty that have reigned over the, the people of the earth for so long, given even a justification in having this sense of scientifically formulated Darwinist theory that seems to suggest that all these other tribes and, and peoples and colored people all around the world are somehow inferior. And so that's what this, this book of the, the Viril, The Coming Race, is really describing in, in, a, in a text of being a fiction and a novel. So that's why it's relevant now, even though these later people have kind of taken up the terminology of the book of Vril to suggest that there's like an alien reptilian race and UFO race or something like that. It just becomes an absurdity now. But when we look at 1984 and we compare it with what the events are that are happening today, we don't think that the archetypes and the analogies that are being described in 1984 are ridiculous. And in the same way, in the book, Vril, The Coming Race, it seems to, in a fictional way, describe the, the rise in the sense of racial superiority and the, and the move towards a utopian world order where other lesser races are ultimately to be subdued. So that's, that's the kind of like thinking that's, that's behind there, and that's why Hitler would seize upon it 
And so that's why that article is useful for our purposes, even though it pokes fun at right-wing conspiracy theories or whatever it does. But the point is it establishes the Thole Society, the influence with the Third Reich and Hitler, and the idea of a coming superior race. And it kind of interjects itself into, uh, because of the, the, the hyper-spiritual dynamics of the book, it kind of gives itself over to this idea that there are is an ancestral race of beings, like an, an angelic race, a, a UFO, an alien force coming from another planet that, that, that are the creators of humans. And, you know, so this is where all this kind of mythology is being developed over time. So you go back to 1871, and they're looking forward to, ultimately, H.G. Wells will follow, and they'll go with the War of the Worlds, and this whole idea of, of alien races and root races, and it gets back to theosophy. I think in order to uh, disestablish that, the connection there in the occult world with the powerhouse that ultimately is going to wind up becoming the United Nations and the, the influence of the Lucifer publishing uh, trust, and the, the, which becomes Lucifer's trust. In order to kind of establish more of that backstory, we need to go here. We have this fascinating paper. It's the Ariosophic Demonic Seeds, the Theosophical Roots of the Nazi Race Theory. And so this is a thesis, a historical thesis. It's put forth by John L. Crow. And I'll add the, the link so you can download it yourself if you're interested in reading it. But let's give it a, a whirl here. I'll just read it into the into our, our show here. When examining the history of Nazi occultism, one quickly finds that the domain is a confusing muddle of influences, connections, and ideological transmissions. Within the morass, it is difficult to draw lines of direct connection, yet, it, yet if one is persistent over time, certain names, organizations, and documents consistently emerge as influential on a wide spectrum of participants. One of these figures is Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, 1831-1891, or better known as Madame Blavatsky. Blavatsky was co-founder of the occult organization, the Theosophical Society, which was initially created in 1875 in New York City, but shortly after relocated its headquarters to India. In 1881, Blavatsky published her magnum opus, the two-volume set, The Secret Doctrine. The Secret Doctrine, in that book, she outlines a new vision of humanity's evolution, one that places the Aryans at the top of a race of hierarchy, at the top of a racial hierarchy. She claimed these revelations came from occult sources and would inform various German occult organizations, which in turn would later inform the racial theory of Nazi. In the beginning of the 20th century, there was a myriad of racial theories circulating throughout Europe, all of which had their antecedents in 19th century. A common link for these theories was an innate anti-Semitism that kept the Jewish race separate and denigrated. Within occult circles in Germany and Austria, theosophical theories of race and human evolution were intermingled with pan-Germanic nationalism and anti-Semitism and nostalgic appeals to Germanic heritage prior to Christianity. So, just to make a note, this is going nostalgic appeal back to the pagan culture and the profane practices that had happened in the tribal era before Christianity. So let's go on. This potent cocktail of ideas was consumed heavily by various groups such as the German Order, the Thole Society, and promoted by the area sophists such as Guido von Liszt, 1848-1919, and, and George Lanz von Liebenfels, 1874-1954. Together, these individuals and organizations laid the foundation for a variety of ideas that informed Nazi race theory and contributed to the Nazi Holocaust, claiming the lives of over 20 million. While there were no direct links, most 
if not all of these individuals and organizations found inspiration and validation within the work of the Theosophical Society, and in particular in the materials of Madame Blavatsky. However, there are those who claim that Hitler had little interest in the occultism. Thus, before examining any connection between Nazism and occultism, one must answer the question to, as to whether Adolf Hitler, 1889 to 1945, had interests in the occult, because if he opposed it, it is unlikely that it would appear in the Nazi party's theories of race. However, numerous links between occultism and the Nazi present themselves. There are still many prominent historians and biographies of Hitler that deny any connections between the National Socialist Movement and the occult. In contrast, other historians have claimed that Nazism is unfathomable without understanding its connections to occultism. Raymond Sickinger has suggested that there is a middle way between these two positions, asking if it is possible to suggest that Hitler thought and acted in a magical way, and that he found a magical approach to difficult problems to be efficacious, quote-unquote. This middle ground seems to be reasonable and has recently been backed up by materials taken from Hitler's personal library. In the May 2003 issue of the Atlantic Monthly, Timothy W. Rayback described his trip to the Library of Congress to examine a collection of 1,200 books taken from Hitler's library at the end of World War II, deposited in Washington, D.C., and then effectively forgotten. Among the books, Rayback found that 10% dealt with religious and occult themes. An important volume that Rayback located was Magic, Theory, History, and Practice, 1923, a book of occultism and magic by Dr. Ernst Schertl. Ryback notes that it was one of the most heavily marked books in the library, quote-unquote, he continues. Hitler's copy of Magic Bear is a handwritten dedication from Schertl, scrawled on the title page in pencil. A 170-page softcover in large format, the book has been thoroughly read and its margins scored repeatedly. I found a particular thick pencil line beside the passage. He who does not carry demonic seeds within him will never give birth to a new world. So let me just pause there. Let me just read this again. This is the quote from the guy's book when he was studying uh, Hitler's uh, library. He, he, he found this particular uh, notation underlined. I found it, and I'll just read it again. I found a particularly thick pencil line beside the passage. He who does not carry demonic seeds within him will never give birth to a new world. Hitler's copy of Schurl's Magic was subsequently been reprinted and with his annotations denoted. Within the volume, we can not only find him highlighting the comment about carrying demonic seeds, we find a whole paragraph highlighting, highlighted about magic and being a magician. Other suggestive annotations include statements such as, Every demonic magical world is centered towards the great individuals from whom basic creative concepts emerge, from whom basic creative conceptions spring, quote-unquote. Based on Ryback's discovery and the annotations by Hitler and Schurl's book alone, we can confidently say that Hitler had at least a passing interest in occultism. However, this is not the only evidence as to Hitler's interest in the esoteric traditions. Hitler was also a reader of Ariosophic occult periodicals and promoted the publications of Kabbalah-based horoscopes of him and Nazi party members. However, others within Nazism shared his interests. Thus, when Nazi occultism and is investigated, a complex web of ideas and influences emerge. However, before examining the occult roots of Nazism, it is first necessary to review Blavatsky's occult theories of race, 
to excavate the foundation upon which much of the Nazi theories of race were founded. So th this is a little historical thesis paper that's been written up, and I just discovered it, and we're going through it, and it just, it's going to go and show the context of this connection between the Russus Trust and Blavatsky and, and Adolf Hitler. So let's carry on. Nazi race theories build on earlier European theories of race. One of the earliest attempts to systematize theories of race and certainly one of the most influential was presented by the French Count Arthur Gabinu in 1816-1882. In 1856, he published The Moral and Intellectual Diversity of Races. In this volume, he classifies the various races of humanity in a seemingly scientific way, perpetuating pre-existing categories in his books, such as Negro, quote-unquote, yellow, quote-unquote, and white, quote-unquote, races. These, he declares, are completely incommensurate, and that the white race is superior. So this is going into just show more proof that some intellects and some supposed philosophers and supposed, supposed schooled men at the time were perpetuating this idea based on Darwin. Of course, right in this time, in, in the 1800s, Darwin is going to be putting forth his theory that, you know, shows that, we're, that ultimately some races are, are more advanced and more, you know, more evolved, but more, you know, scientifically progressed along than other races who are lower. So that's, that's the polite way you say it in the 1850s context. So let's carry on here. Gavin Yu published his most famous work, an essay on the inequality of the human races, 1853-1855. In this discussion of race divisions, he notes that within the white races, the Aryans, so we're, just, we're always tying this war, we're giving you a background where this word comes from, and, and its close connection with the occult societies. That within the white races, the Aryans are the most superior, and in the contrast, the white races, the, in contrast to the white race, the Negroid variety is the lowest. So there you go. There's actually, in quotations, this idea of racial superiority that Hitler and others are going to seize upon. Govenu's theories of race were very influential in both Europe and the United States. We find his, his categories being adopted by others including Blavatsky. However, she recapitulates the theory of races and she retains the divisions and the hierarchy established by Gobineau. So this idea of these terms, these, these classifications of ways of Negro, yellow, and white, these kind of color, this established color hierarchy of people in the world break down, are broken down into this idea called races begins at this time in, in a supposedly scientific way. So you can see that there are all these different varieties of culture around the world. You have Swedish people, that people speak their own Swedish language, people in Russia speak Russian, people in England have their own English culture. And just because you have a grouping of people in the world who have less melanin in their skin doesn't mean they're all the same race. It doesn't mean they're all the same culture or language or they're all the same people because they're not. And their heritage and their, their actual traits and their, their physical biology is completely unique and different than people that, if their only correlation is to say, well, they have less melanin in their skin, they're kind of pale, it doesn't mean they're all in the same race. So this whole idea, this whole nomenclature and this whole kind of false dichotomy that we're presented here to choose, like, what color are you? Well, I think I, I'm a little bit darker. I think I'm black. Or, I have kind of a lighter complexion, I guess I'm white. It's a, it's a ridiculous, unscientific, and insane way to categorize ourselves. And these are categorizations that were established by Gobineau, who was ultimately a racist and a cultist, whose theories were used to support Hitler's ultimate rise, the causation of his beliefs that, that there was a, 
a superior race, the white race, you know, which there is no such thing. There, there is no superior race, and there is no such thing as a white race or a black race or a yellow race. Those are just yellow uh, color categorizations that are just ridiculous. So let's get back to this. In his discussion of race divisions, he notes that within the white races, the Aryans are the most superior, and in the contrast to the white race, the Negroid variety is the lowest. Gobineau's theories of race were very influential in Europe and in the United States. We find his categories being adopted by others, including Blavatsky. However, she recapitulates the theory of races. She retains the divisions and hierarchies established by Gobineau. The first reference to the occult origins of races and theosophy did not come from Blavatsky, but in the works of Alfred Piercy Sinet, 1840-1921, a prominent theosophist member. He had received a number of letters which he claimed were written by occult masters, or the Mahatmas, the, the famous White Brotherhood, residing in the Himalayan mountains. Based on these letters, he published The Occult World in 1880 and Esoteric Buddhism in 1883, in the latter, in the chapter entitled The World Periods, Sinit describes the seven phases of the human race has experienced previously and will continue to experience into the future. He goes on to note that present-day humans are in the fifth race. He claims that his race, he claims that this race began over one million years ago, despite the fact that the fifth race began so long ago, there are remnants of the previous lower races. In the secret doctrine, Volume 2, Anthropogenesis, Blavatsky builds on the foundation laid by Senate, or the Mahatmas, assuming one accepts the source of this information and expands upon it, filling in the holes and coalescing the whole system into unity, which is claimed to come from an occult source, stanzas from the Book of Dizan. So now we're going into this nastic uh, occult grimoires to perpetuate this idea of root races and racial theories. Reminiscent of Gobineau's categories, the Book of Dizan, this supposed uh, Gnostic work, that, a cult book that they're, they're using to justify their theory, claims that after the, the flood that destroyed the fourth race, some yellow, some brown, and some black, and some red races remained. These make up the human race, which led into the emergence of the fifth race, the Aryans. According to Blavatsky's narrative, they will lead humanity forward spiritually by her reckoning the Aryan Hindu is derived from the oldest part of the fifth race. This leads the Europeans, who are also from various stages of the Aryan race, who trace their roots back to India. This is where Blavatsky claims humanity is at present, but in the future there will be a sixth and seventh races being born. And so, the, you know, this just kind of goes on and on and on to the, the point that I'm trying to make. It just goes on, I'll just finish up. In the form presented by Blavatsky, the Theosophical Human Evolution Narrative, in the form presented by Blavatsky... It certainly supported assertions of the Aryan descent. It tries to mount just a small defense of Blavatsky here, which in my mind is completely lost. One of the leading scholars on the history of theosophy claims that Blavatsky's discussion of race is very different than that of other racial theorists. So, of course, that's just absurd. He writes, Blavatsky's use of the term Aryan as the name of one of the root races has raised suspicion. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to really go into it any further. The point that really I'm trying to make is that at this stage in human history and human scientific development, Blavatsky is in the middle of this preposterous theorizing about race. And even though they want to try to blanket her now, cover her now, and say that she wasn't really a proponent of Nazism, the point is that she was establishing through her writings and through theosophy the idea that the white race was superior 
that there was lesser red and brown races, and that the, the Aryan race would rise up to lead the way into the future. So uh, despite that they're trying to raise a protection for her, I don't see that. I think that we can use this article, obviously, to support our premise that Helena Blavatsky and the theosophy and the occult ideas that she promoted, including Luciferianism, the idea that the God of the Hebrews and the God of the Bible was this lesser created demiurge, like a like a, a genie or a demon who was just manipulating the Jewish people and who would be ultimately destroyed. That, that, that idea clashes entirely with the biblical premise that the God of the Bible, the Yahweh, is the Almighty and he is the great God and he is the creator of all things. And that there was a fallen angel named Lucifer who was deceiving the human race. So now you have this controversy, you have to decide, who, who do you believe? Do you believe the God of the Bible, or do you believe this other individual, Lucifer, who claims, claims to be divine light, who claims to be Sophia, and, and theosophists bring uh, Lucifer out as the great uh, Messiah, the great Savior of humanity. And so that's really what's at the basis of the United Nations occult agenda. But no, regarding the Vril Society, they were uh, totally obsessed with the idea that they were in communication with a higher plane of existence and that, that they could communicate with angels and other yeah. beings from other dimensions. But yeah, not 100%. I was kind of blown away when I started reading about it. And I was like, what is this? This is so bizarre of a stripe of, of history that um, it was taking place. The, 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 the occult societies in... Yeah, the, the, the occult societies in Germany were like full bore. Yeah, Blavatsky was probably still around, or 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 maybe her at least her legacy was still out there. Helena Blavatsky, yeah, I think she was riding high at that time. Doing just she was kind of early on with that. She, I mean, I don't know how long she lived, but she did have a compatriot later on. She don't have any of it in front of me now, so we'll have to go and to get all yeah. the, the, the information out. But she had a compatriot who was a Freemason. So she had Freemasons around her. Uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't, um, wait a minute, I'm, maybe my times are mixed up, but wasn't uh, Manly T. Hall like her, I thought he was like her spiritual heir. I of, feel like he was parent. younger. Yeah, I feel like he was he younger. Was, yeah. He was more in like, you know, I'm just guessing at this point, but probably like in the 1920s, 1930s. So I think she was like an era before that. Right, yeah. But we'll have to yeah. go back and look. But then it was Alice Bailey who took up the uh, the whole thing after Helena Blavatsky is what you're talking about. So Yeah, yeah. And these were the occult underwriters and like the, uh, the theurgic authors of all the books and all the doctrine that started to lead towards the United Nations. I think it, it really broke yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you took it right out of my head. Yeah, I was going there too. You know, I think it United was Nations. Yeah, I think it was really like it was really building up during the League of Nations but it, it, that fell apart Yeah, before 1922. It just, it didn't, whatever, for whatever reason it didn't go forward but the uh, United Nations initiative did, it did take off, you know. So that was more like in 19, what, 1945. I, I'll have to go back yeah, and look. That, that, yeah, League of Nations was after World War One, and then United Nations was World War Two. Right, I, I guess believe. Right. But it, so it's kind of unbelievable that they just erected this. I mean, they, they they erected this private organization. So just like any any private organization, like Boy Scouts of America, or just any any private organization, they just put together this this one world government initiative, 
everyone's supposed to do, you know, it's the decorum and the way that it, it, it's, it, it's situated and built and the name of it, everyone's just supposed to get the hint that this is the United Nations world government. You know, see, I, I thought it was a great know, idea when I was younger. Of course, I thought, but what a great idea! You know, right. United Nations, you know, keeping peace in the world and mm -hmm. keeping humanity. I, I thought it was great, a great thing. Right. I didn't think a whole lot about it, but right. I did. Everyone does. Yeah, even today, like, if, like every awesome movie you watch, even if it's in the future or whatever, even this latest one where it's like the, the cool guy, it's like the future war or whatever. It's like it's always the United Nations Council and. You know, the, 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 you know, in the future, in every situation that is the kind of prevailing authority in the movie. Like, you know what I'm saying? So Hollywood promotes yeah. that. And so it's just, and the idea of this, I don't, I don't know where they do all these G7, you know, meetings. I don't even know who, like, puts that together and, and they all show up. But I don't know. You know I, what I mean? It's, it's strange. I don't know either. Did, did, you, did you watch the Vice United Nations ones, the, F, the, uh, the references to it? Yeah, no, I think we're gonna. Yeah, we're gonna. As we're going forward, we're gonna break that down for sure. Yeah, because that is a, a really informative episode. Right. He, he does a lot on it. He breaks down. He goes like deep into. It. That's why it's so, such a good material for us because we can we can basically like see all the. Um, there's a lot of books that you have to go through and read, and they did all the work. So it's 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 kind of like yeah yeah it's kind of like yeah. a research spot to check and, and find out information. You know, just details that you were just you, it would take a long time to put together on your own. So yeah, um, I love it. I love going and checking all that because after you chase down his details and his information, then it, it brings a lot to, in, into view. You know. Yeah. So, and I think it's interesting too how the the inside of Freemasonry is built on the idea of having an interfaith religious system. Because so that's why inside the lodge, you have to be a Freemason and go in there and see that in the lodge they have three main books or three main what they call lights in the lodge, and they have up there the the Tanakh. And then they have the Quran, and then they have the King James Version Bible. Too. Uh, you know, yeah. so, th so those are the three guiding p principles that guide the lodge. So it's, it's interesting because to the outsiders, they tell them that it's not a system of religion. But once you get on the inside and look, yeah, it really is. So Mike really broke it down on that video that you sent me. He mm -hmm. really broke it down how that how it was a form of Gnosticism. And how it was the same religion, basically, that the Jesuits are are living. He really laid it. He really laid it down really well on that video. Right. No, you're right. I mean, I think that behind the order, behind the, the society, is, and then we always if say, in, if you believe in Gnosticism, you can read all the religious texts, and then you can put them together your own in your own form where. Your belief system will be a culmination of all these other beliefs. Right. Yep. No, you're so, right. So Gnosticism and Kabbalah. I mean, God, man, that, that I, I I cringe when I hear the word Kabbalah. I don't know for some reason. No, you're right. I mean, the, the Kabbalah and it goes through. The, what was it? The one book. Yeah, you mean you mean the Talmud and the, uh, the Talmud. Talmud. The Talmud, right? You got yeah. it. Thank you. So that was my point before I said the Tanakh, but that's not really true. It's really the Talmud, and they're really talking about the Babylonian Talmud, and so that's where they get their Gnostic magical 
inheritance from Babylon and Egypt. So you know, it's coming through the Talmud, and of course that's in the Lodge. So that's those are the things that they're mixing together to try to create one religious forum. And so ultimately, you know, that's why they can invite people of all different religions to come in and join. And so that kind of religious practice that you see in the United Nations of building, you know, one world religious initiative is really something that's been built into the core of Freemasonry since its inception, right? So that's what it's all about, you know. And so if you go look and, and look at the, the, the Quran and the surahs and the hadiths and you look at all that, you can see that they're calling for a holy war against the Jews, you know, and Christians. And, and, and so that's, it's, it's really, ultimately, it leads towards uh, Armageddon, in my mind. It leads to the battle of Megiddo. That, you know what I mean? That, that's really what is on the horizon. And people call it the apocalypse or whatever, but Armageddon is the, the battle of Megiddo. And I think that's what we're going to see line up here shortly. Yeah. And Armageddon. So, Armageddon. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I, uh, the, what, I thought it was interesting, by videos, it kind of sent me off into this trail of thought. When you're talking about the capstone on the Great Pyramid. Right. The unfinished, called the, the un, the unfinished it's pyramid. Called the, it's called the Ben Ben. Right. That's another, I've heard it from another source called the Ben Ben. But anyway, it is separated from the rest of the pyramid, right? And it's hidden. So they're saying that the first people at the top of the pyramid are separate from the rest of the humans, right. and they're hidden. They're hidden from us. Right. No, I think you're right. I mean, I think that they're pointing towards another dimension. Um, I think that the unfinished capstone, really, but at the same time, in my mind, when I think of the the Watchers, if because you, you have to go back and look at the the book of. Um, Enoch, the, the Book of Enoch, and the Book of Yash, and all that. And, 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 as far as the Watchers, that's where you're going to get this foreign alien influence from other dimensions coming into play. And everyone's looking at the thing, you know, they're they're thinking about UFOs or aliens or whatever. But that that outside force, I think, ultimately, if it if it's something that comes about the way that it looks like the the prophecy ultimately lays out, I think it's. It's really that influence of the capstone there. That, that the eye, it's Luciferian. It's the idea of an ancient animosity. You know, yeah, yeah. an ancient, you know, spiritual uh, adversary that is there to ultimately enslave mankind. I think that they're well aware of it. You know, in, in their writings and stuff like that. So, um, well, if you look and look at look back in history, the, the right now it's aliens. It's always whatever that interdimensional forces throughout history is always just beyond the current technology, you know? Right. You have the witches, and you have you have was uh, Alexander the Great, he, he was talking about what he saw was in this battle for these flying shields. Mm-hmm. Wasn't that Alexander the Great? It was. And, and uh, it, at one time, they're angels and demons or demons, Another time in history, they're the gods, right? Little G gods, mm-hmm. and it's it's always they're they're always exhibit some characteristic that's just beyond our 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 grasp of understanding. So now it's it's aliens and and ultra not ultrasonic uh, interdimensional travel and wormholes and and everything you know things we're theorizing and thinking about. 
well, there's this force out there that's separate from us that's that's exhibiting the same characteristics. Yeah, I think that if you have to contemplate the nature of the world as we're dealing with it, and you have to imagine that, okay, there could be a creative force, a deity, you know, some kind of, like, beginning point, big bang point where that omnipotent God had created the universe. Again, that's that's the kind of thing that people reject when, they, when they're atheists. They can't imagine that there could be such a being, and so they th- they figure it's absurd, and that this is all just um, a phenomenalistic, materialistic experience, and it's all subjective, and so we just imagine that ultimately, by faith, people are just intuiting that there's a God for us there, and if that's the case, if people come to the the po- you know the possible consideration of that idea, then you have to recognize that there's a, another danger. Which is that that there are there are wolves among the sheep, like we were talking about the other night. But there are definitely forces that are here to destroy what God created. So that's what you're looking at. If you look at the whole entire epic of the Bible, it's really just the story about how an enemy, that you know, an angel, a fallen angel, went and corrupted and, and destroyed and and tried to destroy, murder God's creation. You know what I mean? That's really what you're dealing with. Is it's it, if you look at the whole thing as it's staged, it's really actually like dealing with politics that are uh, above the the life age of the earth because it's it's a war in the heavens. That's what it says that there was a yeah. war in the heavens. Right. Yeah. So that's what the, the warfare in the heavens now affected by the you know by the fall of Adam and Eve, the the reality of our lives in this place. But that warfare in heaven over and above our, like, plane of existence is still in effect. You feel me? We're living through that. Yeah. So I think that in some level that, that the angels that, that fell had the free will to do so, to, to betray God, to, to, to form a confederacy against God, and the angels that remained ultimately had the free will to remain with God, and, and, and so that's how it has to remain. So this is not, you know I mean? That's how it is. That's, ultimately, he's letting this whole case... Judiciously, you know, play out in the courts yeah. of heaven to say, okay, let's just see who's right. So that's in well, my it's mind. A, it's, an allegory, it's an allegory of Job, right? We're Job. We're we're having to live out right. the whole the whole thing and play every every possible possibility has to be played out. You know why Job didn't relent? Because it was on his honor. Because he, now it was him personally too that that it, it, it was it was out of his only the only thing that he had to rebel and spite against everyone else that told him to capitulate was that he had this you know he had this little rebellious unbreakable hatred against the enemy of God and so therefore he was going to remain true to God despite whatever happened to him and he wouldn't he wouldn't curse God or would you know what I mean. I, God bless. That is God bless. Job. Job is one is one uh, book that that supports Genesis six about the fallen angels, right? Because the fallen because and it supports he also says, the Book of Enoch, like you were saying, right? He he because in the beginning or towards the beginning of Job, God calls it, the sons of God are called into the court of heaven. Remember, right? And and the sons of God, the Bene Elohim, Bene Elohim. The good sons of God are called, and Lucifer comes up with them. Remember, and then, and then 
God says to Lucifer, you know, where, where, you know, basically, where have you been? What have you been up to? And he's like, uh, walking back and forth between here and earth and walking back and forth upon it. And he was just, he's just so cocky with him and right. just, you know, recalcitrant, really. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's, that's the thing but, that, anyway. you know, I think you're totally right. I think that, like, it points out the, the, the nature of... And, you know, and it's it, even the Bible, it warns about like going into like speaking of it. it reminds me of like Lord of the Rings when they're like, don't say the name, you know? Yeah. He's, yeah. You know, don't sh- like they would say something else. They would say something. He, he, he bring he bring power to it. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I think ultimately, in my mind, you have to recognize that we are created by God. And so we're the target and we're the adversary of the enemy. And so, he, you know, he's. I think that's what you're looking at in, in the world. You're looking at these different points where there was incursion by the enemy into into history, and, and you know that's the thing. People are looking for you know a great conspiracy, a great you know controversy to, by which it would explain all these different you know machinations of the world, you know, geopolitics, and you know the grand things that like we were dealing with the uh, the assassination of uh, Shinzo Abe. I mean, God bless the man. You know, I hope the Lord. Yeah. I couldn't believe how I, I, I don't know if you each I'm sure you've seen it but on the news it shows the uh, the assailant and he's right behind the uh, what the uh, Abby what is it Abby Shinzo Abby yeah yeah he's right behind he's right behind I mean right behind him and he's got the gun on him and it's like Think about if that were the president. Right. No one is going to be right behind the president like that. You know? No one's going to be walking around, you know. I don't know. It just seemed to me like maybe it wasn't just him. But, I mean, from what they've said, yeah, it's just him. He, he has a personal vendetta against him. But it just seemed like it was... And I'm not the only one that thinks this. So I was talking to another guy about this. So it's the past. Um, hey, I heard. That I heard. Now I haven't seen anything on this, but I heard just by like reading through and just being in shock about the whole thing. I read that somebody said that it was like a JFK like assassination situation. So I'm starting to kind of like wonder what happened. I mean, if the, you know, I, I mean, I guess it was on camera, which is it's also like JFK. I mean, it's it's extraordinary that they caught the the assassination of JFK on camera. I think that's like. It's 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 not a coincidence. It, it was just it wasn't that so convenient the way right. it, the 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 film. Right. It's just right there. Yep. It, nothing to see here. Here's the video. This is it. This is all that happened. And having uh, an eight millimeter uh, recorded uh, like like shoulder like mounted little a camcorder like that at that time yeah. it would have been like about fifty thousand dollars and they, there wasn't a lot of them that you know so just somebody having it out that day and wow. making the film is is pretty extraordinary event you know what i mean because just people take it for granted like oh i can see it right on the tv like yeah but it's just you know what i mean <laughs> same thing yeah. with shinzo Abe. i'd like to know more about what happened but i feel like i feel bad for the people of japan i feel like that they're, they're probably heartbroken and um this is going to empower china this is good for china because he was the he was the one who was trump's buddy he was the one who was pushing hard for japanese nationalism yeah, yeah, but no. I was just saying. I think that behind the affairs of man are other workings of of the enemy and of, and of God, of good angels and, and and fallen angels. You know, in the lives of men, and and so I think that we have to be aware of that. Um, but 
yeah, I think like when I when I see what's going on with the left, also they just they crave this abortion. They just crave this this child uh, this child youth uh, euthanasia infanticide. Really, is what it's called. It's infanticide. Yeah, infanticide. It's a baby murder. Because look, if if I go in and I hit a woman and I'm drunk and I hit her car and she's pregnant right. and that baby gets lost, right. you can bet I'm going to be charged with the death of that child. Yeah, they're going to be blown away because they were looking forward to that family member who was coming just in a few months to be. Yeah, yeah. and that that's a very tricky area. So it's bizarre because you. Yeah. Anyway, Scott Peterson. Scott Peterson. He, he murdered his wife, no. and he, she was pregnant, and he's serving consecutive sentences for he killing murdered. her and the unborn child. Right. Exactly. But doctors kill unborn child children scot-free, and they sell the tissue to different yeah. consortiums of you gotta, pharmaceutical companies that buy the shit. you got to go and, see the, uh, the truth, uh, the, the Project Veritas. Videos where they sit down and they get the yeah, lady to yeah. be like, "Yeah, I'll get a Lamborghini." You know, she's like, she's not the, you know, she's because she's selling these. She's like one of these abortion people who, people who end up with the tissue. And apparently, they were taking out the fetuses while they were still alive, and they still had a heartbeat. The the, the, the baby's body. They were, does. Cut, they were cutting the arms off of them so that they could pull them out. And yeah, Project Veritas is they're they're uh, they're in trouble for that right now. They're well, someone's in jail. Someone's in jail. And, and their bond, I, I believe their bond is really high, but they're in jail from Project Veritas. I just ran across that not too long ago somewhere. Well, I'm going to go give them some more money. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to look that up and we'll, yeah. after we get we'll off the them here. Yeah, we'll click it up. We'll support them and we'll come in and, and we just got to fight this culture war. It's what it is. I mean, ultimately, you have to recognize that I think that these people that are going to try to go to bat to try to keep in place. And, and I don't want to hear about... You know the the you know the the, the, the kids. It's, are, the, the it's babies. a godless world. It's a godless world, and they they're thinking of it in godless terms. No, they are. You know, there's 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 no god. There's no nothing matters. Human life is shit. Right. So why not why not stamp it out? I can't conceive of the whole abortion period. I, well, I think that we should, as a, as a nation and as a culture, we should do a di something different to deal with, you know, with pregnancies when they come along. And ultimately, we need to make make a, uh, a, a peer culture that's ready to receive children and just take them into, uh, into our homes and into our lives and into our families rather than just... People feeling like that's a, like a really good way to just deal with it. I mean, ultimately, I think that in the world where it's about survival and they don't have any other solution, I mean, I, you can see that ultimately it's it's the world that made this whole thing possible, the whole system of abortion possible, like right down the street. Like, you know what I mean? So it's the entire world system and the government, they're trying to make it where the federal government pays for it. So it's its own kind of like... Um, a beast in its own self. You know what I mean? It has to be confronted. Kind of like slavery. It was a monolithic thing. And there has to be just yeah. a different way. Sometimes, you know, we, you know, women will get pregnant and we should just still have the baby anyway and just run with it. You know what I mean? No matter what. And I think that's my look at it. You know what I mean? Like, I, don't, I don't think an abortion is the way to go. Back in the yeah. day, it wasn't even possible. Like, even if things went wrong between you know, people, and they, you know, they were going to have a child that they didn't expect from someone they didn't expect, and ultimately they were still going to have that baby. It was just, you know what I mean, the idea of, like... Most, it, I mean, 
what they should be talking about is birth control. Because I, you didn't have to tell me. I, when I was having sex, well, in a teenager, I knew what caused it. I knew what caused babies. Right. You know, and I knew I didn't want one. And I, and you know, I used birth control. Why is the focus on killing the the result? Why not uh, the whole little uh, ounce of prevention? Right. Right. No, I think you're right. <laughs> No, I think it's a convenience now. I think everyone's saying, well, what if, what if somewhere down the line, some, some uncle in the family rapes a little girl? And there, yeah, but that, that is so negligible. Like, that happens, like, less than 1%. It's not even really a thing. It doesn't account for 70 million aborted babies. That's just it's no, sexual no, convenience. It's a tool of sexual convenience now. And it's you know, it's not healthy for women to just be like, oh, it was a blob of cells. Like, never mind. And, you know, it just it kind of cuts off motherhood. Like, the whole thing happens to a woman when she gets pregnant and she becomes a mother and it you know, she shouldn't, the world shouldn't be making her terrified of it, you know, to, to embrace it, you know? Yeah. That's, that's the nature of it. It's just, you know, and women, have, it's a woman's thing too, you know, ultimately we're talking about it, but we don't have any ladies here to, to talk about it too. So, you know what I mean? It becomes a kind of a absurdity, but, but you see what I'm saying? We, but we're fathers too, ultimately, and we, and we love all of our children and we wouldn't want to think of, you know, them. So meeting with an end like that, we would just, it's just so horrifying to men, to fathers especially too, because partly because we are far removed from it. And it's something that you're trying to like support your, your wife or your partner, yeah. you know, your partner, any, any respect in any kind of relationship that, you know, when the woman is going to have a baby, it's like, you just, you're working hard. Everyone's dealing with getting ready for that, you know, and it's like a spiritual thing. So I think that when women get convinced that, you know, it, it's just not healthy. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then the men are really not there. Like they're like a whole part of the equation of the pregnancy, and then they're just not there. So it, it becomes it becomes a woman's thing, which I'm not really sure if it is. It's just yeah. a man's problem. Like where's the man who started the pregnancy? Why doesn't he? Why don't we talk about that? That you know, that's, that's yeah. so weird that that's just a big old silent wall. That abortion just kind of clean. You know, it's abortion is a woman's problem, but it's really a man's problem if you look at it. Like from my point of view. Yeah, it, you know, it's really that the men are not being men, and you know, these women weren't just you know hit with immaculate conception. They there was a partner there, and they're going to kill the offspring, you know, and that and then there should be no question or there should be no the offspring, the baby that's coming into the world doesn't get uh, you know to, uh, you know any kind of way to to have a, have a voice to speak. So that's why it's so kind of bizarre, you know, the way we're dealing with it as, as a culture and, a, and as a world. is Apparently, America has more abortions than every other country in the world, even China. So we have issues. Yeah. We have issues with it. And that's why I, we have I to thought it, you, you reminded me of a meme that I saw just from what you were saying. I was putting things together, and it said, uh, if you don't want to get pregnant, don't have sex. <laughs> and then, uh, listen, and then under it, it has the Virgin Mary. Right. Right. So what they're doing, you see how they're taking Christianity apart right there? Right. No, I think that the saying, Lord has a lot to say about abortion, especially when he said that, uh, when he when he said that we, we must be born again, he, you know, he, in the other, the other spiritual parallels that he spoke about, he re references this issue. As far as like, I mean, we're, when we're cutting off another life, we know very well that you were born into this world from your mother. And then when, when you, you know, when, when you were cutting off a life, which I'm not accusing anything, I'm just saying that because in the end, when those, when those people, those, those souls go to the Lord, they are going to ultimately just be rewarded with eternal life. And they're not, I don't think they're really sweating it. I don't think anyone in heaven is really sweating it, but the, the, the murder guilt and the blood in the land, because it's actually blood in the land. 
that cries yeah. out. That's what it says. That that that, that innocent blood is going to become a thing that the Lord is going to judge. So that's America's problem right now. And ultimately, I mean, think about it, I'll have something to say too about Roman Catholicism because their doctrine, their immutable, unchangeable canon law doctrine, says that ultimately any children who die who are not christened in the Roman system go into purgatory, into limbo where they sleep. Limbo, yeah. They're not, they're not they welcome into heaven because they, they haven't been, you know, sprinkled by Rome in, in the papacy. So, in my mind, that's just a horrible absurdity that even. Uh, uh, famous. No, you're getting, you're getting to the Anabaptists here. Yeah, the fam- that, the famous, right? the, yeah, even famous like Voltaire, famous philosophers made fun of that. But ultimately, I think that it's kind of sickening too when you see that they have Catholics for abortion down there going insane in front of the, the Supreme Court. Then you have you know the War Room and Steve Bannon and other Catholics saying, "Oh, we don't like abortion." And it's like you know, figure it out, guys. I think the Pope yeah. said he's not sweating it. You know, he's like a Marxist Pope and a Jesuit Pope. And he's you know yeah. he, he's all for it. like you know he 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 was weird because he went in and blessed and uh, and made this whole spiritual pilgrim you know this whole thing over Ukraine and, and, and Russia like giving them like a sacred blessing and then three months later Putin like you know six months later or whatever Putin like ultimately rolls his tanks in so I mean I just see yeah. the hand of the papacy behind that whole thing in the Ukraine we did we did an episode about that we were talking about that there was. In Ukraine, there was uh, situated like, in ancient Orthodox churches that had never capitulated to Rome, and guess what is being like bombed the heaviest right now? It's like these little Orthodox yeah. areas that, that yeah. So it's like it reminds me of the Serbs in Croatia and and you know, all that. That's all from the schism. Those churches. Yeah, they, they're right. remembering the back a thousand years 11, ago. Eleven hundred. Yeah. That's ridiculous. You know, that's a you know, but that's what we're dealing with. I think that ultimately they're not going to forget their program they're just going to keep on working it we were talking about the, the alignment between the illuminati which came into existence uh, right there in 1773 and that right that was right at the same time that the jesuits were suppressed because clement the 13th he he was murdered he was poisoned and then they came in with clement the 14th and he was so upset he actually like signed it and he suppressed the Jesuit order. Yeah, he's like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not gonna die. Right. Somebody else is it. So just let's take a few minutes here and, and cut into our interesting conversation to introduce this clip. This is some of the Professor Walter Veith info and intelligence that we'd like to introduce a lot in this program. So here's some of the background with the United Nations. When we think about the United Nations, then we think about exactly that. An organization, a political organization, bringing the nations together. And that sounds like uh, something commendable. And the question is, is that all that there is behind it? Do you remember that at the Tower of Babel, God separated the nations? Now, if you look at the headquarters of the United Nations in New York. This is really quite a fascinating building. It is large, and the name United Nations was coined by United States President Franklin D. Roosevelt, and was used in the declaration by United Nations of January 1942, during the Second World War, when representatives of 26 nations pledged their governments to continue fighting together against what they called the Axis Powers. Interesting name, Axis Powers. Today there's another Axis that is being fought, and that is known as the 
axis of evil. Have you heard of that? The forerunner of the United Nations was the League of Nations, and this was an organization in similar circumstances during the First World War and established in 1919 under the Treaty of Versailles to promote the international cooperation and to achieve peace and security. This comes straight from the UN webpage, so nothing strange about that. It's just plain history. Some more from that. In 1945, representatives of 50 countries met in San Francisco at the United Nations Conference on International Organizations, and they drew up the United Nations Charter. And those delegates deliberated on the basis of proposals worked out by representatives of China, Soviet Union, United Kingdom, United States at Dumbarton Oaks, United States in August October 1944, it was signed on 26 June 1945, 50 countries, Poland was not represented and became one of the original 51 member states. So it officially came into existence on the 24th of October 1945, when the charter was ratified by China, France, Soviet Union, United Kingdom, United States, and by a majority of the other signatories. And on 24th of October, they celebrate the founding of the United Nations. Now, let's have a look at this charter of the United Nations. This is a very interesting piece of history. Well, Arthur Balfour, do you remember that name? We've used it before. Who was a member of Hort's Apostles? Remember Hort? This is the professor that uh, helped to produce the Greek text that changed the emphasis of the Bible and removed many of the aspects of Jesus Christ's power and sovereignty from the Word of God. And the apostles were the secret society that uh, functioned and at that time, and Hort was a member, as well as Arthur Balfour. Hort called this group a senior apostles club, as well as president of the psychic... Research Society, Society for Psychic Research, soon became Prime Minister of England, Arthur Balfour, and instrumental in the First League of Nations. So this, this uh, Prime Minister was also, of course, active in the writing of the original charter of the League of Nations, much of which formed the basis for the United Nations. He not only headed the Society for Psychic Research, holding seances at his home, but he initiated a group called the Synthetic Society, whose goal was to create a one-world religion. That's a very interesting point of history. And he invited a certain Frederick Mayers of the Society of Psychic Research to join, and together they created the preamble of all religions, and it includes the dogma, departed spirits can communicate. Obviously, if you belong to such a society, then that is part of the situation. So, built in somewhere over there was the wish to bring all religions together. Now, let's have a look at some of the historic figures of the United Nations. Alga Hiss, he became the acting Secretary General of the establishment of the United Nations. The April 16, 1945 issue of Time magazine called him one of the State Department's brighter young men. 
It was his and Joseph E. Johnson who later became secretary of the Bilderbergers. So here we have all the secret societies again who wrote much of the United Nations Charter. So very high Freemasons, Bilderbergers, were responsible for this charter. So that's it to introduce our Vith audio clip. Now we're going to get back to the conversation, but we just want to introduce that information. And the video will be in the show notes too, so hopefully people will look at it. But yeah. But my point right now, the, the point that we're really trying to make is that there were there was a lot of British agency, you know, as far as high up lordship, uh, aristocracy, and uh, British imperial government power. Or as Arthur Balfour is up there with like uh, Milner. And with Rhodes, like Cecil Rhodes, like that, that's that's round table level stuff. Yeah. So this particular yeah. fellow, Balfour, is involved in the creation of psychic research and they have a high level interest in the occult doctrine that Blavatsky is is like peddling. You know what I mean? So uh, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky is one of the main doctrineers or preachers or, or prophets of this new age it has everything to do with um, looking at the universe through the lens of like a horoscope or like sun signs. Like, are you a Pisces or an Aquarius? A Luciferian doctrine. Right. It's a Luciferian doctrine. That, that's really what's underpinning the, the foundation of the United Nations. So they understand it totally to be that it's an adversarial move towards the God of the Bible in the sense that they're trying to. He wants to ascend the throne of the Bible. That's what it says in Isaiah. Right. It says. For how you have fallen, and then he goes in to talking about his high ranks and among the angels in heaven. And he was the covering cherub. He's covering cherub on the uh, around the, the uh, ark of the covenant, right around the throne in heaven. Which the ark of the covenant here that the that the Israelites had was really just ultimately. Um, a symbol of what was in heaven. So it was the temple, the symbol, the, the temple, and, and the arrangement of the the uh, holy of holies, and the cherubim, and all that were were supposed to be emblematic of what was in heaven. So well, they were told by God. They were told by God to, to do that. They didn't do that on their own. Or they followed the, the 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 measurements and the cubits and the determinations to make it how it was supposed to be from scripture. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but you know, let's just. You know, digress back. The point is, is that um, ultimately the United Nations is a re, um, a, re a reconfederating of the nations of the world back into a singular international world body, which was what they were trying to achieve in the beginning with Nimrod under Babel, when he had. Well, yeah, Babel. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, definitely Babel, and and just and Nineveh. Just just as a side note. Google Translate is a rebuilding of Babel. Of course, yeah. Technologically. Uh, because, yeah. I mean, you can communicate with anyone in the world. No, it's true. It's getting really it's getting really effective as a tool, as a technological tool to overcome the communication barrier, which is like really, it's, it's kind of a mystifying thing how if we all evolved on a Darwin, Darwinistic level from, you know, from the same sources, we would, um, ultimately try to speak the same language. So it's kind of bizarre that we have so different languages with such different characters. But also, if you think about it, um, Blavatsky... We're supposed to be separate. And that, that showed we were supposed to be separate 
in the world and when God says come out of every force of enemy God uh, how God wanted to separate the people you know what I mean from joining together in one confederacy against God you know what I mean so this whole well, okay, we're, supposed, we're supposed to come out of Babylon my people right come out and be separate right that means separate from the world system. And I said, I don't know exactly how to do that. Well, I mean, you definitely have to do, do, you do You do it through a church? Well, you do it in it different ways. The church is corrupted. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, you do it in different ways, but you do it in your heart and your mind first. And then you try to do it in your life. But we're definitely, we're definitely in the world system. We're definitely looking around and seeing the growth of Babylon, the growth of the the global system as it begins to take over the nations of the world and begin to use the apparatus of the one world system, you know, to, to bring everything online. That, that's, that really is the reason why we have to, to discuss it though, is because at the heart of the United Nations organization is a Luciferian agenda. And it has an entire system of doctrine that basically deposes written by, by Alice Bailey. Right. Under her pseudonym, some of them. But, uh, yeah, under Lucis Trust. Lucis Trust, that's right. So Lucis Trust was Lucifer Publishing House before, and they were one of the primary uh, ideological and financial contributors to the beginning origins of the United Nations. And so, you know, it's just, it's important that we go back and take a look at it and and, and, and try to expose to people what is really taking place here. And I think it, it really, in my like larger perspective, when you look at it from like a 30,000 feet view, you can see that the nature of anti-Semitism is built in to this, the, the, to the racialism of the theosophical religious principle. And, and that is that, you know, that some races are lesser and some races are, are, are greater than others. Yeah, so that's built into, especially Alice Bailey and, and Blavatsky's original writings, you know, the, the, the idea of the, you know, the, the greater races and the root races and all that. So that kind of, that kind of, it's kind of bizarre that that's kind of, it, it's built in there. And I find it strange also when it comes to, to Mormonism, that Mormonism also has this kind of like under this like backstory about, uh, nations, uh, tribes of American Indians who were, who, who were like, who were lost tribes of this who, Well, they were also cursed because they had darker skin, but then they had this massive battle. And it just, it just, it has this kind of like myth, mythology that goes with it. So when you look at Theosophy and Blavatsky, you see the same thing. There's this weird racial ideology, uh, ra this racialism that kind of it, it permeates the mythos of her writings. That you know there was these ancient races and that there was these battles. And so I find it utterly bizarre and kind of, you know, fascinating, too. What about the uh, Tibetan, the channeling of the Tibetan? Oh, it's far as... Yeah, that was really at a time when it was coming, you know, when the Far Eastern uh, ideas were kind of sweeping, like Eastern mysticism, Eastern, you know, belief systems were becoming more and more prevalent and more and more known about. And um, I think that they kind of like fixated on this idea of Shangri-La, this high, you know, Himalayan yeah. place yeah. where there was an ultimate 
masters of wisdom. The White Brotherhood existed there. I think this was the, the charlatan part of it, where they kind of like, you know, as as seance holders and as as um, you know, as, as mediums, they, they were kind of charlatans, and they they would convince people that they had met the Tibetan masters, and they had they they were getting you know they were channeling. Well, the Tibetan was an actual channel being. Right, right, right. No, all the Tibetan. But I can see where you're leading to. Yeah. Well, I question the whole thing. Like as far as far as um, maybe they thought they were engaging in it, and maybe there was some spiritism actually happening. As far as, what, what was the one guy, Dwao Ghoul? Was that because I know they used that name in yeah, the Mothman so. movie? Yeah, the Mothman movie. That, but that was one of the, the Dwao Ghoul. But he, that was one of the supposed Tibetan masters that you would you know channel and communicate with. So people really believed this shit at the time, and it was a really big deal. But there, what we're really, what I'm really concerned with is they have this this really complex religious ideology that's built into environmentalism. It's built into the World Health Organization, the UN, the World Health Organization, and it um it, it stipulates that this this whole idea of, of Sophia and the divine light and this lesser Demiurge, this lesser god, Yahweh, who came down for all intents and purposes. He thinks, he thinks, he's, the, the, he thinks he's the god of the world. But that, that's, he, so now we're getting into the twisted twists, twists and turns of this. But from their point of view, from their Luciferian point of view, they, they look at the god of the Bible as a real deity, but then he's a lesser and, and, and kind of a, an evil, you know, and he's really the devil. Ultimately, they paint, they paint um, Lucifer as the great divine light, and they they project uh, Jehovah as this fallen creature, this kind of like you know demiurge uh, who who does all this. And so that that's really where this the backstory of anti-Semitism really begins, because anti-Semitism comes into play at this point when you realize that the Luciferian agenda hates the Bible and it hates the doctrines of Yahweh, but it also hates the people of Yahweh who are who are Jewish. So I mean, obviously, if you if you paint Yahweh and paint Jehovah as this uh, evil god of destruction, this bloodthirsty god who hates lambs because he always has to have some you know lambs murdered to you know, propitiate sin, and, and that those are the kind of you know the, the, the emblematic negative imagery that Luciferians project about Yahweh. Yeah. Right. So the point is, is that ultimately, if you're the people of Yahweh. Uh, and you have the people of the the Torah and the Ten Commandments, then obviously you would be, you know, the, the target of this whole system. You're right. This whole religious doctrine that built that, that is built in, so that's Lucifer worship that's built into the UN, ultimately is the, uh, is, the is, is simultaneously the heart of anti-Semitism. People just don't really understand that complexity. They haven't really, you know, and, and, and normal people who have to worry about gas prices don't necessarily care about. Luciferian occultism at the United Nations, but ultimately that's what's driving the the, the uh, one world system forward. And eventually, we're you know people are going to have to confront it, whether they realize it or not. So, but isn't isn't, uh, isn't the uh, after Jesus dies on the cross? Isn't the, the in the temple the curtain is rent from the top down? Yeah, that's right, symbolizing the end of. The end of the hatred of lands, I guess you can say. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... He was the final lamb. He was. He was ultimately... 
the, the blood that is shed for for all humanity and the Passover symbolism of the Lamb is symbolic of of Yeshua of Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. Yeah, the blood on the lentil and but at the, the same time, if you go back, if you rewind the tape back far enough, and you're trying to satisfy this new age urge for UFOs, and you create an entire doctrine centered on this idea that the God of the Bible was just one of of many little gods who was running around and and who created the human race, and who you know what I mean, and who was experimenting, and so you know with his UFO, I mean that those are the kind of you know, kind of Scientology like teachings that, you're, that are coming out of the, the UN and even the Vatican these days. So that's kind of what we're getting into as we're going well, farther into it. I mean, and, but to get, remember the Vatican, I mean, the, uh, the dragon was cast out of heaven and he swept a third of the angels with him. So he's got a lot of uh, angels that can masquerade as UFOs. They could easily do that. That would not even be hard for them. Right. Now, there's definitely a controversy there about something... And they are interdimensional beings. Right. Well, I mean, everything is there in the scripture as far as talking about those who are Ariels or those who are like the the, uh, the, the god of the of the air, the prince of the power of the air, those kind of like... The Elzebub. Yeah. And, and we know that the enemy, the adversary has fallen down from... From above down to us here, and is and is dealing with us and manipulating us and, and, and interfering with us here. So we don't have, you know, they're not in some far away other dimension where they, you know maybe that's where other angels are at, but the ones who are fallen are, are down here with us. So that's why it says, you know, that, that the enemy is like a roaring lion going across the earth, back and forth, you know, across the earth. So people are not aware of uh, of that of the possibility of a spiritual enemy that's trying to find a way to destroy the, you know, them, you and me. And, and everyone, you know what I mean? So these are the doctrines that, that the United Nations are dedicated to. And they, they lift up Lucifer and they worship him as, as a higher entity than the God of the Bible. And they, they figured that the, 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 the interference that God had with the people of Israel and the interference, because, I mean, look at the God of the Bible is very destructive. He destroyed Babylon historically. He, he, he cursed it and, and saw it destroyed. He destroyed Egypt. Um, he, he's he's a, a God who... who you know, takes it upon himself to destroy, you know, what he, he wants to. He destroyed it through men, virus, and, I mean, the media murder, and then further destroyed it after that. Yeah, so you could take that as he's a mean God, or you could take it that he's the creator of existence, and he has sovereign will to, to fight the enemy. And, that, and that's what we were talking about before. I think we're seeing a prosecution of warfare, um, and an angelic warfare, and, and heavenly war, throughout history so he's he's going into history he's going to be involved he's going to be in the uh, with shadrach meshach and abednego he's going to be in the in the fire fiery furnace in babylon you know so you think we'll see the writing on the wall again at some level well i mean at the same time that human finger that wrote on a human on a a human scale you know in, in in human letters that human hand was a christophany was the person of Jesus Christ himself as he passes through all time. So I think he can interfere sovereignly in history at will, so there's no way for him to be overcome. You know, he can let history play out as long as he wants. He's he's victorious. You know what I mean? So the enemy just is caged in, trying to find ways to 
uh, have humanity destroy itself with idea viruses. Like, you know, like the guy who has to suicide bomb others to placate his idea about God, that's demonic. You know what I mean? That, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. The strongholds are in the world. Yeah. And they, they're very destructive and they're murderous. They're always murderous. So you can, you can see yeah. when the enemy is operating when humans are murdering each other. Well, you know, uh, we were told how you, how you how you need to bring this. There's, this is a worldwide, world, world, new world order operation. These are basically, if you really dig into the people behind it first, you want to hear that. Are these Rothschilds? Are these Rockefellers? Are these basically uh, Sabatine Satanists? You need all the way to the Vatican on down to the to the kings and queens of in in England to Canada to all these key roles, Saudi Arabia, uh, so on down so on down the line, and these folks. Um, have been practicing basically Satanism, uh, with about, without a better word, you know, is where they they actually report or, or pray to what they call Baal, you know, which other people call Satan, some people call them the, the, the jinn in um, Islam, they call them all different names in different religions, uh, and they have successfully throughout the, throughout the eons uh, hijacked every religion. First, they started with Judaism. They now they hide behind anti-Semitism, and they're not even Jews. They're not Judeans. They're not at all. And then they move on to they get involved in Christianity. They pretend to be Christians, and they hijack that. They bring in Freemasonry. They do, do that as well. They have, have infiltrated throughout the uh, eons uh, Islam, uh, and they make, and they bring them in on that level. They do the opposite, invert everything that they would do. And these folks have worked their way into a uh, position of key roles in our society across the world. They became the popes. They became the, the kings and queens. They worked away. They started the Russian Revolution and got rid of the Tsar, who, who, uh, and then there was payback. They did the same thing with the Freemasons and, and so on down the line, and they have ability to hijack these different groups. They do very, very clandestine and very cleverly. And they come in acting like they're your friends, and they're, they're deceivers, deceivers, and they deceive, and they lie, and they share, they, they indoctrinate their children into believing what they, they believe, that, hey, we're very special, we worship this over here, and that's where different sides, they take over the media, they take over the, the, the net, they take over the, uh, the governments, they, they black, blackmail, and they do whatever they can do, murder, they do it at presidents, they do whatever they do to get in, and they do this on a generational level. You're talking about, you know, a, a this, this original uh, Babylonian lifestyle of Satanism being carried to this day, but with a modern modern link, modern code put on it. And so now we're here seeing the end results. And this is what we got. What we got is Hollywood is um, sex trafficking and the pedophilia is just, are, it, it, it's infested. You got the, you got the George Soros is, is, is infested. He has, he has, they use these proxy groups to do be the bad guy, like Antiva and so on the line. You got, you know, the Podesta brothers who are, who are blatant Satanists right out there. You got, you got the, the presidents, uh, Republican and Democrat alike, you know. Um, so they infiltrate over a period of time, and what they do is they create this level of chaos. And their goal is to bring in this one world, they call it full spectrum dominance. And how they, they decided to do was to do the, get the used, what they, I guess the tone of the door was, is to use tyranny, healthcare tyranny, as their foot in the door. And that, that, they don't care about your health. If they care about your health, the companies that they own, like Monsanto and many others, they wouldn't be poisoning for the last 30, 40 years. They wouldn't be 
putting putting Florida in your war for the last 70 years. They wouldn't be doing all these horrific things collectively and allowing, and I'm not saying every one of them was conscious of doing it. A lot of them were just bought out. They don't even realize they're doing it, but for the inside of that spider web, uh, where the real real Satanists are, most people don't know what their goal is, but I'm giving you just a, my perspective of what I've seen and put together, interviewing just people that you know as well. I'm probably telling you stuff that you already heard. And, and, and as these people come together, they take over and they keep those rituals. They do the rituals. As Dan Wilcox told me that they do the rituals usually twice a week on Wednesday nights, three o'clock in the morning, they go out and they, whether that's whatever it is, and they do the rituals to keep their, their momentum going with this new world order. And so they had to first, what they do to each country they go into is they first, they demoralize de, 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 uh, it. And you demoralize it by what they put out in Hollywood. You keep raising the bar higher and higher. Now you got, you know, little 12-year-old uh, transvestites uh, and, and transgender kids running around at strip clubs. You know, I mean, who would ever, ever allow that to happen 10 years ago or five years ago? It wouldn't happen. But you do that over time, you demoralize a country and you get your soldiers where they're not fighting good wars anymore. They're fighting for other countries and for other, other international purposes. And then, then after that, you destabilize the country. You start making, you're making the CDC, which was looking out for your best interest. You make them a, a, a profit-making, patent-oriented, vaccine-loving uh, private organization. So, and you tell them that they're looking out for your best interest. So listen to them. Where they're making now billions, if not trillions in time, on vaccines that are unnecessary and that are actually dangerous uh, um, when you get into it. You got, and so you destabilize different FDA, you destabilize different agencies, you corrupt all your politicians, you, you on a local level, you get the Agenda 21 in there, which is the New World Order Agenda, and you get that in place in the different cities, in the different towns, and then you know, your, your third level is you create this crisis, you create a crisis, and we just experienced a crisis, the pandemic crisis in this last year and a half, and that crisis was the COVID-19. And then, finally, the fourth step, really bring the new world order in, in which we're almost there, we're going to be getting there soon if we don't step up, is you bring the new normal. You already hear about the new normal, right? And uh, the new normal is not what we think by wearing masks, not wearing masks, or getting vaccinated, or not getting vaccinated. That's just a stepping stone into the new normal. That has, that's not the new normal. The new normal is what they call this worldwide worldwide, world-spectrum dominance plan. And that's going to be the surveillance, which we already got in place. The 5Gs were in place. Here in Georgia, they, they sold our account. They, the governors gave all the right-of-ways to our, our, everybody's home in Georgia, in front of their home houses, gave them away to the communication tech companies privately. Now, they own them, and your county can't do anything about it. So they can put their 5G masks uh, up there in towers. And that's going to be a direct energy weapon at your house now. Uh, and that will be part of the Internet of Things. So their goal is now to bring us into this new, they call it the Great Reset, which they're in the middle of doing right now. They're resetting us to uh, be basically a cyborg, transhumanism, cyborg energies, uh, uh, human hand, and artificial intelligence, all this now technology they're, they're uploading us in us all the time, and as well as a depopulation plan to get rid of the majority of the people that are here on Earth because there are too many of us controllable. That's the end game. And they're now in going into the new normal. And what we have to expect over this next year is more false flags. Uh, they, they're using the Delta variant more likely or some other variant coming out to just be going into the new normal. And what we have, uh, human hand and artificial intelligence, all this nanotechnology, they're, they're uploading us in us all the time. 
and as well as a depopulation plan to get rid of the majority of the people that are here on Earth because there are too many of us controllable. That's the end game. And they're now in going into the new normal, and what we have to expect over this next year is more false flags. Uh, they, they're using the Delta variant more likely or some other variant coming out to just to justify the next lockdown, which could be as soon as next couple of months. We don't know here in the States. They're already doing it in many other countries. Australia, you know, all other countries now are locking down, uh, getting ready for the new variant. And by the way, as we learned on one of our shows, uh, that I think was called the, the variant, that, that these variants burn down. They never burn up. So how can more people be kill, being killed by a Delta variant when they're supposed to be burning down? It's all lies. People are dying now from the Trojan horse vaccines that they are voluntarily injecting into their body because no one ever told them what's in it. And it's so obvious that no one ever told them it's not even in the pamphlets they give you when, when you're supposed to ask for it by the doctors. Doctors go along with too. They're just as clueless as the rest. And so as we build these payloads of nanotechnology in our body, we become more disconnected uh, from being a human. And it affects our brains. And if you're able to look at some of these things under the microscope, it's horrific. Horrific to see how uh, this nanotechnology that they're injecting into them, if, they, if people knew that, they would never even think about doing it. They would arrest these people, string them up right there up there in the court, and it would be over with. But because it's all being done clandestine and lies, and the mainstream media now is controlled by these people we talked about, um, and they control it through fear, murder, and bribery, and uh, blackmail. So, uh, and it's been in place for, and that's in this last year, this, this process has been in place for a long time. They co-opted the CIA, basically from the get-go, and they've been working for them in the beginning. Uh, they have co-opted the different countries, the main major countries, and as you see, the countries that don't go along with it, you've seen them right now in the last last year, three of the three of these poor um, African and South American countries, um, they kill them. They kill the presidents. Haiti's president killed, and watch. Prior to the, him being killed, they were all against the vaccine. You know, I'm not even keeping up with it. I can guarantee you, the next president there is gonna be pushing the vaccine. Same thing with, uh, um, I think it was Madagascar or Zimbabwe or somewhere around there. Uh, yeah, and they, uh, you know, they were prior they're against it, now they're for it. Go figure. And it's all CIA and their goal for this world spectrum dominance. And it is uh, is evil people. These are evil Satanist people, such as the Rothschilds and the rest of them. And they have, you know, uh, people knew, you look, look across Schwab, he's a, he's a relative, of, he's, a, he's a son of a Rothschild, or Marianne, I believe her name, Rothschild. So they're all, not a big group of them, but they're so powerful because they control the money, and the money controls the people's decisions. I mean, I have family members now who know what I'm talking about, who believe what I'm talking about, but are still going to get the vaccine because now their job's in jeopardy. I mean, come on, man. I mean, where is where is your sense of, of, of faith? Where's your sense of a soul understanding that? And right now, they got the majority of the people, I'll give them credit, they got these sabotines, got the majority of the people in hate. They got them in fear and hate right now. And I and I hate it. <laughs> they got them in fear and hate. But the only way out of that is through love. And that's what, you know, why we started United United Intentions Foundation and the UI Media Network, which our tagline is raising the frequency. We gotta raise the frequency of love to be able to eliminate that level of hate. And I think that's kind of hopefully what we're trying to do each day as we go forward with our with our network and our uh, our shows. Yeah, and I, I'd agree that your your thoughts on, on death. My view is that we're all dead, anyways. You know, we're we're all yeah. <laughs> we're all dead, anyways. You, if you think about it, you, you're actually dead. We're all going to die. It could be in a few years, a few decades, but you're already dead. So that's going to happen. You can't avoid it. So you might as well 
stand up, you know, I, I, we think of all those images, you know, Braveheart and all those movies, and I cannot not tell the truth because I couldn't live with myself. I couldn't look in the mirror every day, so I have to tell the truth regardless of the consequences. And, you know, speaking of the Delta variant, I like to joke, uh, half-jokingly say, but I, I believe it, you know, I'm waiting for the Alpha and Omega uh, variant, you know, because G Jesus says I am the Alpha and the Omega and that he will return uh, one day, so I'm, I'm waiting for those um, variants, and, and as well, you mentioned the esoteric and the spiritual dimension, and I think a lot of people who follow these things geopolitically and economically, what, what's happening, if you're not tuned into the esoteric or spiritual nature of things, I think you miss out uh, on a lot of understanding of what's really happening. I, I have here in a box, I should have taken, out, taken it out, I have a, a box here with just some files and papers, and I was studying diplomacy in Geneva in 2008 and nine, and I attended uh, one of the meetings of the Lucifer Publishing Company, Lucifer's Trust. They have three uh, offices in New York, London, and Geneva. And I said, hey, you know, people, I talk about this stuff, people think I'm crazy. I'm going to go to one of their meetings, you know, get some of their handouts and prove, you know, this is not some conspiracy theory. And I have here the document, it's 2009, and it was a meeting about their esoteric stuff, and it actually says on the paper, Lucifer is like the Prometheus who's bringing fire to mankind, and they... They are theosophists. You know, Alice Bailey founded uh, the Lucifer Publishing Company in 1922. They changed the name to Lucifer's Trust. And they're a formal member of the United Nations. And they actually believe that Lucifer is the Messiah, that he is the Maitreya, the Mahdi, the, the Christ, and they're preparing for his return. I subscribe to their newsletters. And there's a lot of influential people who support, you know, the UN, uh, the Lucifer's Trust. And as you, you laid it out, this is documented. It's not some crazy stuff. Uh, and so you mentioned uh, the new normal, and I, that was one of my questions. You know how people are, it, which I think is basically the social credit system that we see in China. You know, people are now being deplatformed in real life. Uh, you know, there are upstanding citizens. This is happening in U.S. and other countries, Europe. Uh, they're having bank accounts terminated. Uh, recently, two two folks, Laura Witzke, I think I forget her name. She had a Wells Fargo account terminated. Uh, PayPal accounts terminated, other financial services, Airbnb, Uber, being put on no-fly lists now, people being put on no-fly lists in the U.S., uh, and people's reputations being attacked through wokeism and, and cancel culture. Yes. You know, at, at some point, you know, trying to live a normal life will become insanely difficult, and you know, this, is, this is the cashless society, the social credit system. It's here now. So that's just a little, I had to just play the entire clip and let you kind of get a good listen to their little discussion there. And I think that we're all kind of circling the same dilemma. We're all discussing the same difficult position that we're in as, as people, as plebs, as just regular run-of-the-mill common folks in the world, men on the land, free men who have to find a way to you know, subsist uh, with this technotronic tyranny coming online. And I just wanted to point out there that his discussion and his research into into uh, Lucas Trust, into the United Nations, into Alice A. Bailey and Helena Blavatsky, is just kind of you know touching. It's, it's touching the the outer edge of what we really need to delve into and, and to get into this discussion to understand the occult and Luciferian nature of the religious system that has subverted our our global system. And of course, this is a, a syncretism an occult Babylonian syncretism, an ancient craft, an ancient system of occult practice. It's been carried on genera generationally um, for a long, long time. 
And of course, this is the system of world power that the elites belong to, and it's the club uh, that they initiate into when they become Freemasons and when they get up to the, these higher orders and they become members of the elite dominating classes like these Klaus Schwab's and World Economic Forums. When you get to this level, the spiritual initiation totally changes from something that's that's uh, very hateful of Jews. It's something that's, that's the system of anti, uh, anti-Semitism itself, which is, um, is, is the Gnosticism that is being taught at the highest levels in the Vatican, so that the, the outer religious exoteric ideology for the people, for the masses, for the goyim, right, the ignorant masses, um, is Christianity. But when you get on the inside, when you get in the inside of this system, the esoteric system is hidden, and of course it's going to be Mithraic, and it's going to be this mystery religion, the mystery cults and, and mystery school that came out of Egypt and Babylon which is ultimately opposed to Yahweh. It's opposed to the spiritual axiom of the Bible. It's opposed to this idea of Yahweh, this sovereign, absolute God who who rules over creation and who set mankind as the pinnacle of creation. Um, And so this is the, the getting into the Luciferian warfare, this warfare of doctrines between is the God of the Bible the true God or is the God of the Bible a dark, uh, vile, evil God and we need to look to Lucifer, the light bearer. So that's, that's, that's the dilemma that we're getting. That's the great controversy that we're delving into here. So just breaking from the conversation really briefly, just to introduce another audio clip, I would be remiss if I didn't introduce this discussion with Geopolitics and Empire with Matthew Arrett, and he's discussing the background of some of the British policies regarding America and the moves that were made there at the beginning of the revolution. Uh, There was moves to make Canada a 14th colony that would become part of America. And, of course, there was resistance there. And, of course, as you're moving along through this process of trying to maintain empire, maintain imperial control over the world, you're going to see that Arthur Balfour, Lord Balfour, and Lord Milner, and Lord Cecil Rhodes are going to be part of the the, the power structure that's going to set up the roundtable groups and is going to set up the Pilgrim Society and going to set up some of the other um, links, uh, secret links, within the uh, the esoteric secret societies that tie the, 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 the papal knighthood orders to their their commercial holdings and into their corporate structures throughout the the stock markets and throughout the the you know the various system of global trade that they have in place now and so as we look at this this move towards uh, Balfour Arthur Balfour is going to be at the center of this the build up of the League of Nations and the the actual design of the United Nations later on and so you can see that ultimately the British Empire is being converted from a colloquial national empire to a global government and they're be, they're they're transferring their power into this global government through this system of the United Nations. So that's why we need to look closely at Balfour here. So let's listen to this fascinating background history. For those who don't know, Canada is set up as the only monarchy of the Americas. And that's a bit confusing for people. Like, why is is it a monarchy? You know, we're about to have an election. Uh, It was just announced randomly. Like, that's how things work in in a monarchical parliamentary system is you don't have set organized election processes like literally the minority government just said i want to we want to have an election they asked the queen's hand in canada the, the legal head of state called the governor general for permission the governor general gave a royal assent 
So now we're announced that we're going to have an election in three weeks. Um, it's that's weird. That's a weird way of doing things. So what is Canada and why did we fail the Ben Franklin challenge is, is one of the early chapters where I make the point Ben Franklin was up here for weeks um, in 1776 before the, the signing of the declaration. He wanted obviously had a lot of uh, allies in Quebec who felt a great sympathy for the U.S. cause. They, they, did, they had no love for the British who had abused the, the French quite a bit after the Seven Years' War. So why did they fail to still, despite all of that, accept the offer to join as the 14th colony? So I, I elaborate upon that. I go through some of the elements of the British intelligence operations using Jesuitical operatives as well, who were firmly ingrained and entrenched in the Canadian establishment. Uh, like Bishop Briand was one of them who basically passed a rule saying that you will go to hell and burn forever because you'll be excommunicated um, as a farmer if you fight with Washington. So that, that scared, I mean, burning in hell forever was not attractive. Um, the other thing was the uh, warm blanket clause. So, you know, we were given by British... You know, we're, Briand said, the bishop said that if we stay allied to the king, we will be granted local controls, local democratic controls for the first time that we would have never have dreamed of having before. And so that was a bribe. It was called the the principle of enfourapé, enfourapé, which is a French word currently in use to describe being screwed over. But the word comes from English, infer wrapped or wrapped in fur. So they basically just wrap people in, in a warm furry blanket and be like, just stay with, stay with, stay with. Papa. And uh, so we failed. And as a result, there was a British intelligence hand always available in the Americas to subvert uh, U the USA itself. And to, over time, and this is not a new thing, and in my book I go through how um, you had people like Aaron Burr, the guy who sets up Wall Street, the Bank of Manhattan, who kills Alexander Hamilton, who um, <clears throat> interfaced very closely with his nephew, the Governor General of Canada. Uh, to create the first effort in 1800 to break up the United States when it was just a couple of decades old. And the idea was that, you know, he was running for the presidency against Jefferson. He was going to win in all likelihood. If Hamilton had not intervened in Jefferson's defense, Burr would have won. And uh, the idea for, from that standpoint was to create a northern free state uh, confederation allied with the British and tied into uh, British territories in Upper and Lower Canada. So that would have been one new nation a confederation that would have dissolved the constitution completely as the slave states would have become their own confederacy, again, allied to the British, because who's buying the cotton? It's the British. Who's controlling the shipping routes? It's the British. Who's controlling the banking system internationally? It's still the city of London back then. That's not a new thing. So the fact that Aaron Burr is also in the middle of setting up um, Wall Street, and the bank, which becomes, J.P. Morgan becomes part of the Bank of Manhattan that he sets up and kills Burr, it's not a coincidence. So all that to say, Canada is always there, and when, by the way, when Byrd is, is about to go to jail for the third attempt to break up the United States that he's caught for when he's in 1807, just seven years later, he's, he's, you know, he's already killed Hamilton, he's now, he's now working with a bunch of traitors um, in the Federalist Party to create a, North, a Western Confederacy after the Louisiana Purchase, and he sets up himself <laughs> to be the head of this new thing that was going to declare war on Mexico around Spain and, and take control of Mexico, take Louisiana and, and New Orleans uh, using American mercenaries from Andrew Jackson's house, which was the headquarters. Andrew Jackson was, his manor provided the home base of recruitment. And this, there, somebody blew the whistle at the time before it could be carried out. And the idea was to install Aaron Burr after that succeeded in the White House in Washington, D.C. after deposing the sitting president 
who I guess would have been Jefferson, that was uncovered before it could fault happen. Again, it required some serious Anglo-Canadian operations to make that happen. And where did he go to avoid arrest? Montreal, Canada, where, again, his nephew is still the governor general who sets him up with letters that he takes with him to London, where he stays for five years until 1812. In Jeremy Bentham's house, the guy who was the head of British intelligence, sets up Aaron Burr in an orgy-filled opium den of his debauched manner, which Aaron Burr calls the best time of his life, before, and he meets with Lord Castlereagh. He's interfacing directly with these guys who are arranging the Congress of Vienna just in 1815, just a few years later, right, to reimpose dictatorship and, uh, you know, uh, monarchical systems of control onto Europe after Napoleon. So he's meeting, and then he's deployed back into the United States. Uh, a week before the War of 1812 is launched. Why? Because there's a new operation to dismantle the U.S. in another way, using its Canadian operations. And this becomes that in the next 40-year dynamic is shaped by the Burr machine, which involves Martin Van Buren, involves Andrew Jackson, um, who later on goes on to kill Alexander Hamilton's second bank of the United States. Canada was really, at the time, just a, a few little like provinces on the, on the Atlantic side. Four. And then British Columbia was this isolated lone colony. What was separating, what was the rest of Canada? It was a private company for the past 260 years before that called the Rupert's Land, a.k.a. Hudson Bay Land. It was a private zone tied to the British East India Company that was like the 80% of Canada. Why did, why did that get sold so quickly? It was sold immediately, pennies on the dollar, by these companies to the Canadian government uh, to, to get uh, British Columbia on board with Confederation because British Columbia didn't want to. They were an isolated colony. They were choking financially. The gold rush had just created a bunch of bubbles that popped. Nobody had a future. The only economic activity they had was with San Francisco. And so why did the British annexation movement to join the United States fail? Why did Lincoln's policy, which was being expressed by people, his advisors, which involved using Alaska as a springboard to take the transcontinental railway, which was finished in 1869 and connected up the West Coast through British Columbia into Alaska, into the connecting zone for the old for Eurasia, which is supposed to connect down, you can see these maps that I I, I found that I, I published in my in my book, uh, showcasing like you know William Gilpin's international land bridge of, of rail going down to Africa, Asia, with the spring with the connecting point being the Bering Strait. So all these things should have that was the momentum. Why didn't it happen? And so from that standpoint, you can better appreciate what was the real geopolitical reasons for the British uh, North American Act, the sale of Alaska. You know, the, the creation of Canada as we know it without the mythologies, you know, just honesty, and it helps. Uh, for the, the second part of your question regarding the Malthusian, the X-Club, the, 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 the restoration of empire in the face of all of this progress, because the empire had, had weakened itself enormously, right? Go back in time to that period. If you're a, an imperial, if you're a Lord Palmerston type of geostrategist, looking at your globally extended system, You've just exerted massive resource allocations towards the Opium Wars, the Second Opium Wars against China. You've exerted massive influence and, and expenditures in uh, supporting the Confederate South. You know, the British were building warships used by the South uh, to fight Lincoln. Uh, that failed. You had already spent a lot of effort in working with France and some corrupt people in the Ottoman Empire to get Russia into the Crimean War to dismantle Russia and also to dismantle the Ottoman Empire. Um, you put a lot of effort into two years of, of 
tried to destroy the uprisings in India against the controlled famines that killed millions by Malthusian policy. That was the British policy was use the gifts God gave us of famine and disease and war to check population. Malthus writes that directly, you know, <laughs> kill babies and less room to be made from the deaths of, deaths of old person, persons. He's a, he's a mathematician. He's, and that's why he's employed by the British East India Company to work at Haleybury College to train, you know, John Stuart Mill. <laughs> all of the, 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 the ideologues who would become the, the, the upper level thought controllers of the empire. So, you know, Britain had, had stretched itself far and they couldn't stop this momentum for progress and the nations embracing a multipolar win-win orientation for uh, developing their, their, their interests as well as their neighbors in knowing that we get more out of seeing the world as a non-zero sum system. You can create more wealth if you create peace, not division, right? You encourage creative thought instead of stupidity. You can create more in the long term, which is better for everybody. And, and that was that truth. It's a fundamental truth. It's scientifically groundable truth of self-interest. It's not just philosophically nice. Uh, that was so powerful. And the only way that they could bust it up was, I mean, there's on the one hand, a certain type of like, um, I think of it as a, as a corporate management reshuffling. So when you're, when you're a corporation, if you've got a business, it's not producing uh, revenue anymore, there's mismanagement, you could either declare bankruptcy and just give up, or you could bring in management consultants, evaluate your different departments, you know, re reintroduce innovative ideas, and that's what was done with the British Empire. There was a sort of reorganization under, there was a recognition of a lack of creative uh, adaptability. And uh, you had, as, as I go through in the last chapter of 15, um, Thomas Huxley was a young, very creative, very misanthropic uh, young man who was discovered, whose talent searched and discovered, um, and was very quickly, by his, within his 20s, made a, very, a leading official within the British Royal, Royal Society. And he was given certain privileges. And again, he wasn't born from a rich family. He was born from a poor family. He just saw syphilis patients. He was working in the ghetto slums of London. He was working in bed. So he developed this, this hate. And that hate channeled a lot of creativity. And uh, he was given a responsibility for a project to manage um, a new set of theories that needed to be cooked up to justify scientifically uh, empire and to cohere the empire in a more uh, satisfying way where it could be more unified in its parts. Uh, that became the Darwin Project. So Thomas Huxley became an early enforcer and controller of Darwin. Darwin rarely ever debated, he never actually debated his own theories in public. It was always Thomas Huxley, his bulldog, who was always going out. And part of the... Um, Part of the, the propaganda machine that was created was his ex-club, which was sort of a dining club set up in Cambridge, interfacing with some of the best misanthropic scientific minds representing different fields of anthropology and sociology and even geology, astrophysics, uh, you know, economics, literature. Matthew Arnold was a dining partner on this thing. Um, and they basically created a regular dining club that organized like an early think tank. Uh, a new strategic set of policies and, uh, and nature magazine was uh, created out of this group as well, which I get through, um, as a, as a propaganda instrument. So with this came at least now a new ideological foundation to start creating coherence, but that was still 1865. This was created the X club, right? Darwin's project was only published in 1859. Um, there was still lack of means of carrying it out. How do you effectuate now the policies? These are nice thoughts. Nice, evil, whatever. 
thoughts, but how you carry it out. So the first, there, there were several other think tanks that would do a bit more of the dirty work, one of which was called the Fabian, Fabian Society, and that was set up in uh, 1873. Um, using a certain retweaking of some of the programs for anarchist mobs of the Young Europe movement of Mitzini and Palmerston that had been useful for the 1830s and 40s and 50s to just create anarchy and destabilize nations in Europe and also some in the United States. Um, but it wasn't coherent enough under a, a, a unified ideology. So that the Fabian Society became sort of a, a socialist, a not a real socialist, because it's not a real socialist. These are people who actually, if you look at George Bernard Shaw or the Webbs or later on H.P. Wells or other members, Bertrand Russell was a member, Julian Huxley was later on a member of the grandson. Um, but a lot of the people who were high-level Fabians themselves were not, you couldn't consider them socialists because they didn't really care about people. Um, they just liked it as a cover to attract good people who were in labor to a cause that would put them in a, in a controlled environment with the priesthood scientifically managing the system from the, from above. Um, so that became one thing that set up the London School of Economics. Lord Balfour was a member. Uh, Lord McIndoe was a member who uh, went on to create geopolitics. Um, he ran the London School of Economics actually for a while. But then also you had the, the roundtable movement um, using some of the money, all of the money, from the, uh, the funds of of Cecil Rhodes, who had, you know, destroyed Africa, raping out diamonds and, and cotton for a long time in Rhodesia. And uh, when he died, um, his money was used according to his will. And uh, some sponsors, <clears throat> like I think it was William Rothschild was an early one, some other higher level oligarchs, to um, use that money towards the creation of an array of th other types of think tanks called the Roundtable Movement. That was managed by this guy, Lord Milner, who worked in South Africa, too, to put down the Boer War with a, a grouping of young young boys uh, like Philip Kerr, who goes on to become Lord Lothian later on, the ambassador to Washington. Um, or, anyway, Lionel Curtis is another big one. But all of these guys are called the, uh, the Milner Kindergarten, uh, who managed the Roundtable Movement. They become leaders of the Roundtable Movement, and uh, they... Another part of the money goes towards the creation of a, of a Rhodes Scholarship Trust system. So Rhodes Scholars are, are created to be indoctrinated in, in Oxford and then redeployed back into their part of the world uh, to maintain coherence and advance a bit more of a longer-term agenda. The Roundtable Movement becomes, you know, it, it manifests several other forms after World War One, which was, by the way, orchestrated entirely by these groups. World War One was not something that, that needed to happen. It was, it was an artificial war. That could only happen with some serious manipulation of history by these forces and a lot of assassinations and coups Um But they created things like the Council on Foreign Relations. So that became the, the roundtable movement in, in the United States in 1921. was created by a bunch of Rhodes Scholars and Fabians um, it, it, at that time embedded in the U.S. bureaucracy. It, they were still were not controlling things, but they came in, in in high numbers under Woodrow Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt before that. Um, and the, the Council on Foreign Relations, we know, you know, they 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 didn't. It's essentially the Chatham House I and mean, the Chatham House movement in London, which was the Royal Society for International Affairs. That was part of the Versailles Treaty Agreements. It was it was created on it was brought online as part of that whole package after World War One, um, as well as the League of Nations. Uh, it, was, it was all part of the different aspects of the same world government beast. Um, they couldn't just call themselves Chatham House of America, so they gave themselves a Council on Foreign Relations. And you know, we had versions in Canada and, and in uh, New Zealand and, and South Africa, and actually a major organization which today um, runs a lot of anti-Chinese psyops, and that's very attractive to a lot of people who are smart. 
um, is the China Africa podcast, uh, which some of your viewers might know of, which was entirely funded by the, the Roundtable Movement of South Africa. Um, is it China Africa Project? I think I That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, that, that sort of sets the tone for a lot of the stuff I go through in Volume 2. So right there, we're just going to, we have to cut it somewhere. We can't really listen to the entire interview and re, uh, republish it. We, you know, I, I'm attaching it to the podcast. That's how interesting I find it and fascinating. I think that you should take time to listen to it. And we're weeding through all this information all the time and trying to bring to light information that's going to be productive for you rather than just the run-of-the-mill, typical uh, brainwash, you know, mind-slaving corporate media BS that you're going to constantly be dealing with. So we, we're going to be here to elucidate the, the true facts of history and get this information out. And you can see that what we're showing here as we're, you know, building the case, we're trying to get you to take a closer look at, at the, the power of the aristocracy, the power of the imperial monarchy and the imperial courts um, over society and over banks and over globalism and over uh, the United Nations and over this move towards a one world government and a one world religion. And you can see that individuals like uh, Arthur Balfour, Lord Balfour over here, and, our, and individuals like Cecil Rhodes and th these other people that we're going to begin to to bring out into the light are instrumental in developing this system of Babylonian mystery ritual and the Egyptian sorcery, the, the practices and the praxis of Egyptian, the Book of the Dead and the Egyptian religio-cultic ceremonies. They love it. They love to worship the moon and the sun and to worship the equinox and the solstice and they love to lift up Baal and to really ultimately proliferate this Luciferian cult. And that's what we're bringing to light here, is that when you get to these, the higher levels of these initiations, when you get into the, the highest levels of the 33rd degree of the Scottish Rite Freemasonry, when you get up into the knighthood orders, the, the order of the, the garter, I mean, you get into these, these royal societies, and become the, the Fabians, the controllers, the, the people who craft these and engineer these secret societies are ultimately practicing the ancient pagan Gnostic traditions that they inherited. They came down from Egypt and from Babylon. And those percurrents of theosophical, ideological, religio-cultic tradition are not abating. They're not going away. They're generational. They're, they're transferred. Just how you Romanists might get with your children and put them in front of the Christmas tree and have them open Christmas presents each year, inculcating a religious system into their lives. And that's what these other individuals, these Luciferians, are doing the same thing. And ultimately this process of having a Christmas tree, of worshipping, of course, December 25th was always the Babylonian day of Baal, the, the high occult uh, ceremonial day to worship Baal. And so when you have a Christmas tree in your house on December 25th, you're really participating in this Luciferian system, but you've been deceived into believing that it's Christianity. So that's why it's a process of syncretism, of, of basically getting you to practice their, their liturgy and their praxis and their rites and their rituals, but doing it in the name of, of a, a different deity. And it's the same thing that Mithraic traditions did through time, as far as the, the, the secret cult of Mithras. It ultimately adapted and became the predominant religious system in Rome. Even though it came out of Persia and it came out of Egypt, it ultimately was a system of priesthood and priestcraft that would transform like a chameleon and would shapeshift and would would adjust to whatever the parameters of the religious cult was that they were dealing with. And ultimately, that's how the Mithraic traditions came out of 
out of the Greek traditions, the, the Greek mythology, and ultimately became something that dominated Rome, and ultimately would dominate the, the Roman system of universal religion that we call Catholicism today. Section of our uh, podcast here, and we just want to leave you with, we have, the, of course, the links in the show notes, but we just want to leave you with a fascinating little clip here of this in-depth lecture that Professor Veith does on the United Nations and the occult background. So let's listen to some of his fascinating exposure here. Towards the end of his markings overflow with spirituality and mysticism. They are the words of the United Nations themselves or their representatives telling us how this inspiration came about. Now let's go back a little bit to Foster and Alice Bailey. These were Alice A. Bailey, the one who received dictated messages from Dwal Kul, and who is known as the prophetess of the New Age. They started a group called World Goodwill, an official non-governmental organization within the United Nations. The stated aim of this group is to cooperate in the world of preparation for the reappearance of the Christ. So the United Nations, in other words, is an organization preparing to get all the religion, all the governments together, yes. But that is just on a political level. The agenda behind it is to bring all the religions together and to prepare it for the coming of Christ. Which Christ? Not Jesus Christ, but the cosmic Christ. Because Jesus Christ is not coming, as we will see in a future lecture, to do what they think is going to happen. Their Christ wants to have a kingdom here on earth. But God says, my kingdom is not of this earth. Now, let's have a look at this man, Robert Miller. There he is. Dr. Robert Miller, former Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations, Chancellor of the United Nations University of Peace, and he's Chairperson of the Peace Party 2000. He's a very prominent man. What does he write? Robert Miller. Decide to open yourself to God, to the universe, to all your brethren and sisters, to your inner self to the potential of the human race, to the infinity of your inner self, and you will become the universe. You will become infinity, and you will at long last, your, you will be at long last your real, divine, stupendous self. There you have the same philosophy. So what is he saying? That we can become gods. Alright, so that is the mover and the shaker of the philosophy of the United Nations. Robert Miller writes in World Core Curriculum the following. Now this is stunning. The underlying philosophy upon which the Robert Miller School... Now what is the Robert Miller School? We'll have to come to that. Robert Miller School is the education program for the entire world as will be enforced by the United Nations. That's scary. Let's read on. The underlying philosophy upon which the Robert Miller School is based will be found in the teachings set forth in the books of Alice A. Bailey. Hello? The books of Alice A. Bailey were published originally by Lucifer Publishing Company, which, because of all the flack, they changed to Lucis Trust. 
Isn't that correct? The school is now certified as a United Nations Associated School providing education for international cooperation and peace. Okay, there's this big business. So the philosophy is based on Luciferian channeled writings preparing for the coming of Lucifer. And remember what they said. They were quite open about it. Alice A. Bailey claimed, Evidence of the growth of human intellect along the needed receptive lines for the preparation of the New Age can be seen in the planning of various nations and in the efforts of the United Nations to formulate a world plan. From the very start of this enfoldment, three occult factors have governed the development of all these plans. Now, can you see why I call the lecture the UN and the occult agenda? Because Alice A. Bailey says there were three occult plans and Robert Muller says, yes, we follow the writings of Alice A. Bailey. She did not spell them out, but she did state, within the United Nations is a germ and seed of a great international and meditating reflective group. A group of thinking and informed men and women in whose hands lies the destiny of humanity. Ooh. This is largely under the control of many fourth-ray disciples, if you could but realize it, and their point of meditative focus is the intuitional or buddhic plane, the plane upon which all hierarchical activity is today to be found. That's about as occult as you can get. What she is saying is that the inner core of the United Nations is controlled by people who are under the control of Lucifer. That's what she's saying. She's saying it's demonic. And it's out of her words, not mine. I'm just reading. That's what's such fun about all of this. Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, founder of Theosophy. She was the forerunner, of course, of the Bailey books. And Theosophy was then taken over by Annie Ward-Bassant over here, and then taken over by Alice A. Bailey. And here is the great invocation that has to be read and learnt by every child in the future from the point of light within the mind of God. Let light stream forth into the minds of men. Let light descend on earth from the point of love within the heart of God. Let love stream forth into the hearts of men. May Christ return to earth. But this Christ is not Jesus Christ. From the center where the will of God is known, let purpose guide the little wills of men. Oh, how neat. It's so derogatory. The purpose which the masters know and serve. What arrogance. From the center which we call the race of men, let the plan of love and light work out and may it seal the door where evil dwells. This is interesting. Which door is to be sealed where evil dwells? Well, if you know occult science, you'll know that they call light darkness and darkness light, and they say that Jesus is the evil one. We read all those quotes when we did the, the lecture on that issue. Let seal the door where evil dwells. Let light and love and power restore the plan on earth. Restore what plan? Restore whose plan? And who made it so that it is not restored? Well, who separated the nations? God separated the nations. What is the focus of the United Nations to? Unite the nations. So they want to restore that 
which the in inverted commas evil one happened to mess up with one brilliant move of confusing the languages. Well, this goes to show one word of God is confused for four and a half thousand years. Who's really in control here?